Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. On a scale of getting out of bed in the morning to going to the zoo, how excited are you for another episode of Whining About Herstory? Zoo! 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 Feeding giraffes at the zoo! <laughs> Adult night at the zoo! I know. Going Fuck to the zoo children. is like one of my favorite things. They Anyways. do not belong there! <laughs> monkey bars only! Monkey bars are for me! I'm really good at them when I've been drinking. Yes. Anyways, I hope I hope you're on zoo level because this is another episode of Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two besties with breasties drink a shit ton of wine and talk about women from history that you probably haven't heard of but definitely should have. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And I want to pet a capybara. We still need to go to the mall. We still need to go to the mall in Maple Grove that has capybaras. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, I mentioned about this that, ages yeah. ago, but yeah, my, my friend Chelsea, before she left Minnesota, she's like, I'm going to pet capybaras in Maple Grove, Minnesota. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Apparently they have them at the mall. Yep. And like her and I on Instagram, it's basically just capybara videos back and forth. Yep. My they're Instagram the, feed. at the Maplewood Mall. Oh, Maplewood. I'm sorry, there's so many maples. I know exactly which mall that is, too, because I used to go there all the time growing up. Oh, my God. But they you can they also have, um, like, it rotates what animals are there. So you could do kangaroos or <gasps> raccoons or possums <gasps> or bunnies <gasps> or capybaras. I love possums. Did I tell you that uh, the fella and I crocodiles saw too. a little possum? In, in the alley when we were getting getting tacos at the Mexican food truck. No. <laughs> it was incredible. It was just out there drinking from a puddle. And it was really hard for me not to like go up and just snuggle it. Because possums are the perfect combination of super cute, but also like really relatable because they just look tired and fierce all the time. It's only $10. Are you fucking kidding me? Why did we go to River Falls? Why did we waste our time traveling back to the little town where we fell in love when we could have been petting possums and capybaras? Yeah. we Our know. priorities are terrible. Yeah, they are. We'll have to plan that. We did see a pony, though. Yeah, it was pretty great. The pony was cool, and the little train was cool. I did not trust that old man to be pulling a bunch of kids no. in like a little tractor train, but by God, he did it beautifully. Sorry. <laughs> they were having, they were having river falls days and we went to our, the small Wisconsin town where Kelly and I went to college and met and fell in love. And there was a guy driving a small tractor train with a, like a shit ton of kids in tow. Hmm. And he, I, I kept thinking, I yeah. was like, he, he's gonna crash like this is it but he was really good yeah no he like he was all over the place like in a very tiny area yeah. he was like weaving all all around it was great his glasses were six inches thick but by god he just felt the route <laughs> yeah he did <laughs> and he wasn't afraid to run people over when he like went one way and there were people there he's like fucking move it i will kill you bitches move i will kill you and i'm so old and tiny no one's gonna convict me (laughs) all right well kelly what wine are we drinking today we are drinking the emily damn right we are yeah gulp me up bitches um 
Yeah. I am wet and delicious. <laughs> so this is the Emily Chardonnay Pinot Noir. Although British-born Emily Hobhouse, who is actually who I'm covering today, has become an honorary South African through her selfless and courageous actions that expose the inhumanity of the concentration camps during the Anglo-Boer War, uh, we dedicate this wine to her memory and the brave women fighting for what is right all over the world. I think that is the heaviest wine label we have ever read. Yep. And then it says, the Emily is a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, which looking farther down the label, it's 98% Chardonnay and 2% Pinot Noir. I was going to say, it looks really heavy on the Chard. Um, which results in a light-bodied and refreshing wine with just a hint of color, generally referred to as Ole de Perdix, or the Eye of the Partridge. Oh, I thought Served you were chilled, which is what we are not doing. It sounded like you said ole de pair of dicks. <laughs> yeah. And that is, yeah, no, that that's that's headcanon for me. Hersery headcanon. That's how you say the eye of the partridge in France. Yep. French. Ole de a pair, pair of dicks. Of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not many of our wine labels mention concentration camps. Nope. Might this might be our first one. Didn't we have an Emily? Before, yeah, was I think it was just brand? Emily. I don't think it was the yeah. Emily. I think it was just Emily. Well, it's a, I've never met a bad Emily. Yeah, Emily, we've talked about this. To be fair, Emily Murphy from our last episode at best is problematic. Right. But. Not bad. Not outright bad. I haven't Some met her. Some bad ideas, yes. And yeah. we've never met I her. I haven't met her, so she doesn't count. I've never met a bad Emily. There you go. All right. Well, this wine was Kelly's very special and very relevant pick for her story today. But if you would like to sponsor a wine, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash W-A-H pad and sponsor a bottle of wine for as little as $5. It's a one-time opportunity for you to sponsor a bottle of wine. We'll give you a shout out. Depending on your message, we may try and find some wine or your name. Uh, we'll try and find some wine that is relevant. We will ask really embarrassing questions to people yep. at the liquor store. Like, do you have any ham related wine? I literally, so the first liquor store I locked, walked into last time, I literally was like, do you have any Canadian wine? And the it, like the person that I was talking to is the owner of the store. I know the store. There's only like seven people that work there. Yeah, And his face just like falls and he's like. I've drank almost every, like, I've tasted almost every bottle of wine we have in the store, and I don't think we have any Canadian wine. He just looks so sad, and I'm like, that's fine. And he's like, can I help you find anything else? I'm like, no, but I'm going to wander for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up buying other wines. But you know what? Not all who wander are lost. But, yeah, it was just <laughs> Especially like, in a liquor he, store. He, like, genuinely felt really bad, and then I kind of looked it up, and I it wasn't, like, his fault they didn't have any, like... Apparently, we just don't get a lot of Canadian wines in America. Honestly, I think what that was, was a moment of him being like, oh my God. <laughs> right? Like, he didn't even think yeah. of Canadian I wine. I think it was just this moment of like, wait, why don't we have any Canadian you wine? You fucking gave him the red pill. And his mind was opened <laughs> to the lack of Canadian <laughs> wine options. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, too, like... It's really interesting because the article I was reading was like talking about how like it's not for want of Canadian wines being bad. Like apparently a lot of them oh, are yeah. really, really good. It's just with having a wine country or like wine state basically with California, we have a very competitive market. So it's hard. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, you you talking about that experience. So it made me think back to when we were trying to find the ingredients for that uh, that wine cocktail. Yep. Where I was like, oh, Rosé the Riveter. 
I read the name. I moved did on. Not, yeah, did not. Nope. Gave zero consideration to the ingredients. So we went to two liquor stores asking, like, do you have grapefruit liqueur? And I swear to God, the people looked at us like we had been like, do you have the blood of virgin babies? Right, they're like, the fuck? Like, they were confused and horrified. I mean, granted, it was still, like, winter in Minnesota, so they're probably like, why do you want grapefruit no, liqueur? No, I literally don't care, because that is the perfect time to have grapefruit liqueur, because I'm trying to forget that it's winter in Minnesota. Give me my indoor beach day, where I just play ocean noises, sit in my shorts, and drink a margarita. But yeah. So if you want to get in on all of this discourse, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash W-A-H pod. You can also find it on our uh, Linktree links on Instagram and Facebook and sponsor a bottle of wine because you love us. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, uh, cheers to Emily. To Emily's. Emily's. Emily's everywhere, especially this one who is decidedly anti-concentration camp, apparently. Yes. As we should all be. Yeah, I, I feel like that should be a universal. Uh, also, thing. this Emily is decidedly anti concentration, internment, whatever the fuck you want to call it, camp. Like, even though it's like 2% Pinot Noir, like it has that like hit oh in my the God. back. Like, it's very subtle in the front, and then it's very sharp in the back. Is it weird to say it's kind of spicy? It, no, it's definitely kind of spicy. It's got a spice to in it. In a good way. I no, like it. No, I'm actually really I, impressed. I, I was don't not know what I was expecting. Much. I was not expecting much. I'm not a it shard gal. It was not gal. this, and it's pretty, this is really good. Apparently, all we need is to mix 98% Chardonnay with 2% Pinot Noir. And Literally, then, then they just okay needed it. the 2%. They tried five, and they're like, no, this will kill people. Yeah. And they dialed it back to 2%, and that was the happy medium. Yeah, it's good, though. Oh, my. It's like 2% milk. You only need 2% milk. The rest is water. Right. It's definitely how it works. Yeah, 1,000%. I know dairy. <laughs> I went to school in Wisconsin. I'm an expert on cheese and dairy. Yeah. Yeah. Bubblers. Bubbler. God, fuck. don't you fucking say that word. Guess what? You get to start. Oh, shit. This is going to be a longer episode because we both have longer stories, but it's how it worked out. So you get to deal with it. But you know what? You know, actually, I kind of wish. Actually, it might be a good thing I'm going first because my story has nothing to do with concentration camps or humans, human rights violations or genocide. That's like most of my story. I know. It's like I know. 80%. We definitely balanced each other out. Like the 2% of this Pinot Noir and the 98% Chardonnay. Cling, cling, motherfuckers. God damn. It's, it's so crazy how it like, it's like, it's like the sudden rush of like, whoosh. I really like it. Yeah. No, I do too. Okay. So uh, today I am whining about three women in a jog bra. Three women in a jog bra? And. Okay. I was like, man, that's. Three women plus a jog bra. And you're just there. really like getting into the multiples lately. Okay. So you know how last week was like, I was like, I love a good group project. Yep. This is more like a group project that we're all familiar with where it ends in flames and hurt feelings Ooh. and devastation. It's like a standard group project. Exactly. Where, where it's one of those things where it's like, hey, you may get an A on the project, 
but none of you will ever be the same. You are all worse people. (laughs) So I want to give just a huge shout out to David Davis, who wrote the article, the mostly untold story of how the sports bra conquered the world and tore its inventors apart for defector.com, which served as my primary source because he like called and interviewed the women involved in this story. He had a lot more detail. Like, it was a really good source, and he got into the drama, which we're going to find out is a part of the story that doesn't get told as often. So, hmm. go you go, David Davis. I love your parents for naming you David Davis, by the way. They have a sense of humor, and I love it. So, if you have breasts, you understand the love-hate relationship with them and bras. We hate our bras and revel in flinging them off across the room after a long day, but at the same time, we endlessly search for bras with the perfect balance of comfort and support that aren't going to make us go bankrupt. Spoiler, none of that actually exists. The bra-ta-ta relationship only gets more complicated when it comes to exercise. We have all worked out with a bad sports bra, held our tatas while running up the stairs, or even worked out in a standard bra. Like, we've all been there, and it sucks. I remember when I started doing the cardio boxing, the only sports bra I had, it, I I actually, it was basically a strip of fabric. Like, it gave me no support. My titties were bouncing everywhere. It didn't even, like, cover my nipples. It's like we're doing aerobic stuff, and I am just have my arms crossed over my chest being like, yeah, this is fine. Because <laughs> I'm like, that my, sounds tits, my absolutely tits are terrible. going to fling up and hit me in the face. Fortunately, I found two very beautiful, good sports bras good. that I love, and right. I'm in a very good and healthy relationship with. <laughs> yeah, because that sounds terrible for you. Because so. I have needs that that lime green sports bra we're not meeting. Anyway. <laughs> well, we love to hate our bras. I think it's fair to say without sports bras, the number of titty-related concussions would skyrocket. Yeah. And while you may have suspected that, like, the traditional bra... When Kelly covered that gal, we're actually inventing the bra was the least insane Part and notable thing story, that she yeah. had ever done. A woman was behind the sports bra, but you'd be wrong. It would actually take three women to make it a reality. But their story would be full of double D sized drama. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. Our story begins in the 1970s. Lisa Lindahl was one of many women who were getting into the burgeoning jogging craze. Historically, as we've talked about, women have been discouraged from exercise, especially running, for fear that their internal organs would fall out from between their legs. Because that's how the human body works. But with second wave feminism, Title IX being passed, an out-of-sight counterculture, and the fitness craze gripping the country, more and more women were running. It was like this really perfect synergy synergy of all these different things happening around the same time that were making it, women feel more comfortable and empowered to start running. So jogging in particular had taken off in the 1960s in the wake of President John F. Kennedy's establishment of the President's Council on Physical Fitness. Every American child remembers the presidential fitness test. God, yeah. Thanks, JFK. Running a mile was literally 
what I thought the worst thing that had ever happened to me for a while. Um, but he did this to address the issue of American children being far less fit than those in the USSR and other countries. Now, I all I admire like, hey, our kids need to be more fit and like healthy. But also right. there was definitely like some red scare where it's like our kids need to be strong enough to fight the Soviets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to fight like, the communists. Yeah. We can't fucking do this. So with an emphasis on aerobic exercise, jogging became the default workout. Lisa had married young, and as she said, quote, one of the things that was beaten into me growing up was, you can't be alone. You can't be independent. If you ever have a convulsion while you're alone, you could die. My answer to that was to find a husband, so I married young. And it's important to note Lisa has epilepsy. So that was one of the reasons. I, I think that was actually a pretty standard dogma to thrust upon women like you need to find a man to take care of you but for her in particular they're like you know you need to find someone to take care of you specifically because yeah. you have seizures and you can't be alone right because then you're vulnerable yeah so now only 28 years old lisa was studying at the university of vermont working part-time and struggling in an unhappy marriage quote i was an emotional eater preach same and was gaining weight and feeling very uncomfortable because I had never had to deal with that before a friend suggested that she start running to get into better shape well women were still actively discouraged from strenuous exercise jogging didn't have to be strenuous it didn't have to be long or over rough terrain or even fast so Lisa started jogging at the university track a few times a week and soon she became hooked she was snorting running three times a week. Yeah. Get that no, good runner's thanks. high going. I get it. Like, I used to think running was only for people with deep emotional problems. I was a sprinter. Um, and I still have deep emotional problems, but I've really taken to running on the treadmill. She said, quote, it was the equivalent of winning an Olympic medal to me. It was helping with my depression. It made me feel more independent. I said, how far can I go? Yep. Which those are all proven benefits of exercise in general which yep. is so wonderful and the fact that she's getting into like how far can I go it's not just about losing weight it's about pushing your body and you know meeting new goals and challenges which is a really healthy way to look at exercise so good for you Lisa good job go you go Lisa so laps around the track became runs through the woods, tremendously helping Lisa's mental health and healing her relationship with her body. Aww. Because Lisa suffered from epilepsy, like many others with long-term health issues, she felt that she was at war with her own body. Running helped her to feel that her and her body were one, working towards the same end instead of enemies. And like, I felt that way with my hip issues and with my gut issues. I'm like, I am literally fighting with my body. My body is my enemy and it doesn't have my best interests in mind and my body is ruining my life. And that's not even epilepsy, you know? So the sense of freedom and strength that she found in running also helped to give Lisa the courage to leave her bad marriage. That'll come in later. She does leave, but like it really gave her the sense of I can do things. I can do hard things. Yeah, which is great. But among all these benefits, there was a big downside. Jogging with boobs? Two, actually. Standard bras were no match against the bouncing boulders of fat loosely pasted onto the chest wall by ligaments. <laughs> Lisa, that was beautiful. Yeah. No, I, um, I, unless it's in a quote, I really try not to use the same word for breasts 
I actually looked up different things I to call breasts. love you for that. You know what? If I'm going to say gentleman's ranch, I need to use all the fun words for breasts. That's true. So Lisa, like many other women, were discovering why they're called knackers. Lisa recalled, my breasts were flopping all over the place. Again, hugely relatable. We yep. have all been there. Yeah. I was chasing around the tiny puppy the other day, and I, it was like in the morning, so I hadn't put a bra on yet, and I was like, you know, like running around with my arm over my chest, and my husband's laughing at me. I'm like, you don't even fucking understand. Yeah, like, yeah. First of face. all, first of all, shut the fuck up. Second of all, keep shutting the fuck yeah. up. But no, we've all like, even if you're like lounging around the house, like I've had it where my dogs are barking at the neighbor dogs, and I have to like run out and deal right. with them, and, and I'm like, not wearing a bra, and like. It hurts. Yeah. It really hurts. So, and that's just like a quick little jaunt. Right. You yeah. know, can you imagine a running jog. a mile with your tits flopping all over the place? Because they don't just move up and down. They move in all directions. They're like airplanes. Yeah. They're, they're apparently more difficult to manage than driving <laughs> for some people. <laughs> for some people. For some people. Um, so let's also take a moment to remember that women are running in bras made in the goddamn 70s. The only purpose of these bras was to make your melons look good under clothes. Comfort was literally not a factor in the equation. Right. And remember what tits looked like in the 70s? Slightly they were conical. triangles. Yep. Horrifying. Like I sometimes see old video from the 70s and it's like all these women not wearing bras. I'm like, yeah, because they're so liberated. It's like, no, because bras sucked so fucking bad. Yeah. So women explored all sorts of options for keeping their ladies in check, including wearing bras that were too small, wrapping their chests in ace bandages, wearing two bras, hell, and just holding them with their hands, as we've thoroughly discussed. Right. Quick disclaimer, do not do any of these things, especially the ace bandage method. Like, and this this has especially come to light um, with people who are like doing chest binding, or like trying to flatten their chest. Yep. Um, you can permanently damage your tissue and cause serious pain. Like even if you do it right, because there is a correct method to yeah. like, and you're only strap supposed to do it for a certain down. amount of time. Yeah. Like I've talked to people that are either in transitioning or have transitioned or whatever, and that wore binders, you know, to feel like themselves. Yeah. And yeah, they're like you're only allowed to do it for at like at maximum eight hours a day. And, like, all of this stuff. Like, seriously, find one of those, like, breast binder shirts and, like, talk talk to your friends. Get some good recommendations. Please, Jesus do Christ, safely. do not use ace bandages. No, that's so dangerous. It's really bad. Um, so one day while Lisa was complaining to her sister Victoria on the phone about how much bras sucked ass, actually they were like talking to each other, bitching about bras because Victoria had gotten into ring. She's like, oh my God, what do you use for bras? And Lisa's and like, like <laughs> I don't know. It sucks. Right. They're like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So Victoria quit that they needed jock straps for their baps. And Lisa. Over the shoulder boulder holders. Yep. And Lisa decided that this was actually a really good fucking idea. Yeah. So she teamed up with her childhood best friend, Polly fucking Smith, to work on making just that. So Lisa and Polly had been besties since eighth grade. Polly Smith was a costume designer boasting degrees from Moore College and a master in fine arts in film and stage design from New York University. And while working as a costume designer for the Champlain Shakespeare Festival in Burlington, Vermont, Polly was staying with Lisa 
who, unlike Polly, was not skilled with textiles. Hmm. Very much like me. Lisa's incredibly relatable throughout the story. Right, I'm like, hmm, I'm not, I'm not textile-y savvy yeah. either. So Polly, following the hero's journey, decided decided to deny the first call to adventure. She So Lisa goes to her and is like, oh my God, you need to help me make a jockstrap for our like, boobs. she's nah, I'm good. Yeah, she told Lisa to leave her alone. Quote, I was busy and it wasn't Lisa's first wacky idea that she would recall. But when she realized that Lisa wasn't going to let up and that she was really serious about this, she relented. Quote, there was no getting away from it because I was renting a room from her. (laughs) Which I'm like, Lisa, you kind of trapped her, didn't you? Yep. It's not just the friendship. It's that you literally have a roof over her head. Um, And this is where our third actor steps onto the stage. Hilda Shit, I should have looked up how to say, pronounce this. Schreiber, S-C-H-R-E-I-B-E-R. I'm going to say Schreiber. It's Schreiber or Schreiber. Yeah, but uh, Hinda was, I, I never, Hinda. yeah, I like, I like never use her last name, so it's fine. So Hinda was working with Polly as her assistant that summer, born in Montreal, Canada. Ooh, we're back to Canada. Canada. You're never done with Canada. She studied at Parsons School of Design before meeting Polly while she was also earning her Master's of Fine Arts at NYU. So while Lisa was a runner and Polly was a designer, Hinda was both. And she recalled, quote, we were in the first group of college educated women with the option to be on the track team and get all the benefits of sports. Running was a part of our everyday life. With bouncing boobs, it hurt, and the guys were always looking at you, and you felt self-conscious. Again, like, me in my gym, like, class, being like, don't look at me. Your husband teasing you about grabbing your boobs is like, stop looking at me! Stop looking at my bouncing tatas. Right, like, My bouncing boulders. They're mine. My bouncing baps. So with the dream team assembled, there was just one thing to do. Design a bra that was comfortable, supportive, easy to move in, breathable, soft, but strong and easy to use. No biggie. The trio studied existing bras, taking inspiration from design elements that worked uh, and pitching the ones that didn't and furiously sketching designs using Lisa's 34C chesticles as a model. And I wasn't going to include like the bra size in there. But I do want to point, like, I think when we think of bras and their supportiveness, like growing up, I had D's and it sucked because all I wanted to do was go to Walmart and get the super cheap, cute bras. But you can't do that when you have D's. You got to get like a really stable bra and they're never cute. So like at 34C, she's kind of in this this medium area where it's like right. she needs something substantial, but, you know, it's not like she's a G where it's like, good God. Right. Where you're you know? literally going to hit yourself in the face. Yes. So despite their attempts, nothing seemed to work. Then Lisa's husband, because remember, she's still married at this time. Al provided some unexpected inspiration. Al, who was described as a bit of a jokester, was watching the women work on their bra design. And as a joke, he put on a put a jock strap on around his torso and announced, ladies, I present your jock bra. I didn't get a lot of information on Al. It just sounds like maybe they weren't a good fit together, but it's a, Al's kind of a character. 
What was supposed to be a joke gave Polly the visual inspiration she needed. She would call it the, quote, fateful moment when all the pieces fell into place. Like she's doing all the groundwork. She's doing all the research and like really trying to figure this out. But visually seeing it on someone, she's like, I see how these pieces are all going to fit together and how they can fit together. Right. She's like, oh, shit. This is all making sense. Thanks, Al. Go put a shirt on now, please. So using supplies from the University Theater costume shop and dro- and jock straps uh, purchased at the University Bookstore. I just love that they're using actual jock I know, straps. literal. Well, because if you think about I it, a jock it strap is, is yeah. a tit for your, or I almost a said tit. tit for your penis. A tit for your penis. <laughs> it's a bra for your penis. I mean, yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's a bra for your, God, what what was it? The, the Throtsmeyer. Thruxton Thruxton Jack. Jackaroo. Jackaroo, yeah. <laughs> it's a bra for your Thruxton Jackaroo. <laughs> I have to write that down. There I need to go. have that on my hand at all times Thruxton until I commit it to Until I commit it to memory. Uh, so Polly sewed two jock straps together, creating the first prototype of what would become known as the jog bra. But at this time, they took they took Alan's suggestion and were calling it the jock bra. And I would I just want you to like look this up just look up like early jog bra or jock bra because i want you to see you can see the pieces of the jock strap that were used to create it so one of the early prototypes is in the national museum of american history's collection and it's pretty wild how similar it looks to sports bras today the jock straps waistband became the rib band the penis pouch became the cups and the butt straps became the shoulder straps crisscrossing across the wearer's back. Again, we have all owned this exact bra. One of the bra's revolutionary design elements was that it didn't have hooks. The wearer could just slip it on, which I've actually never learned how to hook my bra on, like, from my back. I have to put it on, hook it in the front, twist it around, and then slip it over my shoulders. I never figured that out because it's stupid and terrible and I hate it. And I resent that that was a skill I was expected to acquire. Anyway. That's just funny. So I learned so many different ways to put on a bra just because I did not like, like when I was younger, when I was like first in puberty, I was like kind of in the beginning of like the people I knew like hitting puberty so like I like was super embarrassed and so yeah like I learned like the under the shirt the behind the back like literally every way you can think of to put on a bra I probably learned how to do it yeah I mean I can do under the shirt but again I put it on backwards like slip it up under my shirt hook it and then I move it around Mm -hmm. yeah nope I just I just put it on and then clip it in the back or I just let the tatas fly. Right. Because when I'm in locker rooms, it's also other that, women, and I, mean, I yeah, don't now, fucking now care. Now that like everyone I know has hit puberty, and I'm an adult, I don't give a shit. Yeah. <sighs> Bras are hell. Anyway, back to yeah. the history of this specific bra. <laughs> the sports bra. The jog bra. So to test the invention, I love this because this is like what you do when you're like this startup and you have no I'm resources. I'm so excited for this. So to test the invention, Lisa wore the sports bra on yep. a run while Hinda and Polly ran in front of her and behind her to examine the jiggle of her jugs. Ex- did I say examine? <laughs> yeah, I just, I wasn't going to say anything. Examine. I know. 
Um, so like one of them's running backwards in front of her watching her tits bounce. The other is running behind her and like watching how the back is working. And then they're, they continually use this method to adjust the design. The women also employed the hot new textile in the athletic world, cotton lycra. So hot right now. And this was a much more breathable fabric. I don't know how breathable jock straps are. I imagine not, not very super breathable. Yeah. All I know about jock straps. You're just struggling. And I love it. Words are so hard I right know. now. I just, I can't. English, the words. Um, all I know about jock straps is like, they touch your penis and they smell. I, I imagine them like socks for the penis. Like you don't want to be anywhere near those after a workout. So in the fall of 1977, uh, the trio incorporated their company under the name SLS, which was Smith, Lindahl, and Schreiber, their last names. Uh, and the company had 300 shares divided equally among the women who each invested $100. So they each invest $100 for $300, and they each get a third of those shares. And that's going to be very important later on. The philosophy of, the, of their company was for women by women. It was all about co- collaboration, not competition. That's not how it would turn out, though. Hinda borrowed $5,000 from her father to fund, fund a limited run of jog bras. She connected with a woman named Carolyn Morris, who had recently been fired from a local factory and was making ends meet by sewing clothes in her trailer. Hmm. So Hinda hired Carolyn... Uh, to create small, medium, and large sizes using the designs, and that resulted in 40 dozen white bras that were then de- delivered to Lisa's apartment. Nice. However, daily life and str- and struggles didn't take a break while the women were busy changing the world. Right. Lisa was getting her master's and in the process of divorcing her husband. Polly was busy working on the fucking Muppet show. Like Polly comes off as a as kind of a passive character throughout this story, but that's just because she is killing it in her career as a costume designer. Hinda, however, wanted to devote everything to the jog bra. And like Hinda is described by herself and the other woman as like a doer. She's like, no, 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 we're gonna do this and I'm gonna do it and make it happen. You know, like she's kind of that personality. So, uh, so Hinda met with Polly and asked to buy Polly's shares of the company. She stated that she wanted to devote her energies to making the jog bra a success and borrowed money from her father and wasn't going to do all that work for just a third of the company. Polly, probably not wanting to rock the boat, agreed. She would later say, I didn't really think it through. I just said, well, I guess that makes sense. Because again, like, you know, I don't know if any of them ever... Actually, I know none of them thought that this was going to be like this big revolutionary thing that it would become. And like Polly is kicking ass in her own career. She's like, hey, if like you're like you're investing more money, like you really got this going and you really want to do this, I guess. But Polly would 
later regret it. Oh, that's unfortunate. So Polly sold Hinda 80 of her 100 shares and instantly regret it. I think it's one of those things, like we've all been there where a friend asks you for something and you just say yes because you feel like that's what you're supposed to and then you think about it. Especially when you have all this other shit going on and maybe don't have the time to fully process what it means. Yeah, which is why, and like we've all been there where a friend asks you for a favor or asks you for something and you say yes because you feel like you have to. I think we all really need to practice just being like, can I think about it? Or like, can, can I have a minute? Because our knee jerk reaction for a lot of us is just to say yes, because it's uh, less conflict. It makes the other person happy. Like it's, it's the path of least resistance oftentimes, but really that kind of thing leads to resentment down the line. So it's a lot better for us to all just take, take a moment and think about the decisions we're making. Yeah. Um, so Polly would later say, we should have sat down together and said, we're going to do this and it, and this is how it's going to happen. And it ended up causing huge, huge problems. So in retrospect, she's like, this should have been a group conversation and I shouldn't have just said yes, you know? So when Hinda approached Lisa to tell her what happened and asked to buy her shares, Lisa was taken aback and straight out refused. But Hinda didn't need Lisa's shares. With her 180 shares, she had majority control of the company. As Lisa recalled, quote, Hinda said that she was now the majority shareholder and that I had to do what she said or she'd fire me. I'm sitting there going, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, throughout this story, all of us, okay, all of us are going to have judgments. Right. And, like... We're, we're going to think things about certain actors in this. We've all been in this situation, though. We have all been in this kind of drama. Yep. Maybe not with a bunch of money on the line, but we have all been here. Yeah. I know. Like, we're, there's just different people pulling in different directions. And yeah. yeah. There's just, yeah. So while Lisa and Polly felt Hinda was playing for power, Hinda said, quote, I wanted those shares back from Polly to put it into the company. I really didn't think about it too much, but I know it became a big brouhaha. I didn't have any preconceived anything. So despite the uneasiness, the women decided to move forward and submit their design patent. When the patent was originally created, it listed the creators in order of Lisa, Polly, and Hinda. However, when Hinda went to submit the the patent, she recorded the name, putting her name first. And this meant that that the creator of the patent would always be written as Schreiber, Hinda, S, et al., so only her name would appear and that's kind of like and others yep um again we have all fucking been here where someone does something like that and we're like uh i know it shouldn't be a big deal but also what the fuck so lisa and polly argue that not only was this a petty move it was totally incorrect Lisa and Polly were the primary forces behind the idea and conception of the product, while Hinda's strength was getting it to market, and and uh, which actually made her ineligible to be included on the patent at all, because she didn't come up with the idea. She like helped it, helped like realize it, but it wasn't her idea and it wasn't her design. She didn't actually create it, and like Lisa would say later that. 
legally she shouldn't have been on there. Like there's a lot of this, oh, and later I found out legally, like this is the case or that's the case. And so again, these are these are young people who kind of don't know what they're doing in a lot of this. And they're they're being put in really uncomfortable situations where they don't know what should be going on legally or personally. Right. And again, we have all fucking been there. Yeah. Um, as Lisa said, it was my idea and it was Polly who turned it into a manifest thing. And that is what constitutes constitutes invention. Taking it to market does not constitute invention. And yet that was what Hinda's role was. And that's what her strength was. So again, like Hinda has a big strength in this, but there's definitely some alienation going on. So Hinda's... I fucking love this. I love this. And this is why I love David Davis's article so much. Cause this is where I got so many of these quotes. Hannah's response to this was, Oh my God, give me a fucking break. <laughs> these are like women in their seventies too. who are like commenting on this. It's amazing. What is the issue that I put my name first? And Lisa thought I should have put her name first. Right. I wish I was that thoughtful. This was the part where I started to make judgments. I am an Aries. Oh my. An Aries is a person that goes in front. The person that leads the charge gets things done. Sometimes without all the thought in the world about what I was exactly doing. I don't carry any memory of premeditation on my part. And I never have. I will let that go. This was 50 years ago. People can hold on to their issues as long as they want to. Like, she says she's let it go, but it really doesn't sound like she has. Also, okay, first of all, anyone who's, like, giving an excuse to hurt that they've caused based on their astrological sign, please don't do it. Like, I can say, like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a Pisces. I can, I can get really emotional or, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm not going to say, like, well, you shouldn't feel hurt because I'm a Pisces and that's how I am and there's nothing I can do to change that. That is not how this works. Um, like the characteristics that she's describing are traditionally associated with Aries, but that doesn't mean you didn't mess up or you didn't hurt people. And actually in this quote, she acknowledges like I'm the person that leads, you know, the charge gets things done sometimes without all the thought in the world about what I was exactly doing. And that was the issue. There doesn't have to be malice. And like, I'm not saying Hindo was like being malicious. Right. But what I'm saying is she definitely was not thinking through her actions and concerning the feelings of others based on these actions. Yeah. Well, it really depends. Like, the maliciousness is something we probably won't know because like if the paperwork had been written up and had the names a specific way and she changed it intentionally, there is a chance that there was some maliciousness because then it, that meant she had to go through the process of changing it. Yeah. If she just went in and they were like, tell me the names and she started with herself that makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Well, and and again, like w when I think malicious, I think there's an intent to hurt. You can you can hurt without the yeah, intent. That's true. So I I think that's really what's happening here. And I think we've all known that person where we're like, "Oh my god, did you really just say that or did you really just do that?" And they like they're like, "What?" It's like, "You really don't think that was a problem?" 
So there's a lot of strong personalities. There's a lot of ego. Um, yep. But again, the second she goes, I am an Aries. I'm I like, Hinda, like, honey, oh no. Like, it's one thing to be like, I'm headstrong. I, I like to get things done. Yeah. But to like blame it on your astrological sign. Please do not do it. No. Just please don't do it. I love reading about astrological signs as much as the next person, but please don't blame it on your that, negative traits. Yeah. yeah. So even among the drama, the jog bra was brought to market and the initial 480 bras sold out. The women knew they had something special and decided to invest more money into what they were now calling jog bra Inc. Like they were going to keep calling it the jock bra, but then someone was like, that's a sweaty piece of cloth people put on their penises. And they're like, maybe not. Maybe (laughs) Maybe we don't call it the jock bra. So Lisa was in charge of sales and marketing and Hinda was in charge of production and inventory. Each bra sold for $16 and was packaged in clear plastic so women could see exactly what the revolutionary product looked like. Because other than a traditional bra, which remember, sucked. And conical. It was, yeah. Like, it sucked for normal use and it super sucked for sportswear. Like, now women could actually see what they were getting into. Um. And that was kind of like decreasing the barrier to use where it's like, right. I can envision this on my body. Exactly. Their motto, no man made sporting bra can touch it. I don't know. That's just Accurate. like such a badass. Drop. Yeah. Bra drop. <laughs> bra. Fling the bra across the room and then it lands on the lamp. And two days later, you're like, where's that bra? Right. Hanging from the ceiling I need my fan. nude bra today. Yeah. It's just <laughs> spinning around. Good God. Um, so within one year, their company hit $500,000 in revenue. By 1982, they hit $1 million. Insane. This started by sewing jock straps together in 1977. And in, le- in just a few years, they, they made a million dollars. So despite appearing in ads, smiling and wearing the jog bra and attending trade shows and running events to promote their invention, the relationship between the three women was becoming more strained than a 32A bra filled with double Ds. The early drama only weighed more heavily on the women as time went on. Lisa and Hinda, who both had very strong but opposite personalities, clashed constantly. So, like, Hinda was like the, let's fucking do it. And Lisa is like, let's let's stop and think about it. And when you want to go or you want to, like, stop and the other person isn't on board with that, it is very stressful. Um... Do, 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 do. Polly, who felt um, she had contributed contributed to the situation by selling Hinda her shares, felt guilty and helpless. Yeah. So poor Polly is like taking responsibility for the situation. Oh, she's like, I should have talked to Polly. Lisa. I should have like said, like, she, she's having a lot of regret over that decision. It is not her fault. It's not her responsibility. But I get I, I get it. So with Lisa and Hinda's relationship at a breaking point, the two finally compromised. They decided that the inequity in the shares was part of the issue because, again, one of them, like, financially and legally has more power than the other. So Hinda sold some of her shares to Lisa. Then to ensure that she and Hinda were 50-50 partners, Lisa had to approach Polly asking to buy her last 20 shares. 
Polly said, quote, I gave up the shares willingly because I was so guilt ridden. Lisa's friendship was more important to me and my career was going fine. I was traipsing around London, working on the Muppet show and having the time of my life. I had more fun than they did. I didn't quite make the big bucks they did, but I was doing fine. Yeah. So like Polly is still hanging on to this regrets. She wants to help her friend and she super doesn't want this to be like a thing, a a thing. And she, she's like, I've kind of moved on from this. I'm doing my thing. This was, this was a bit of a side quest for me. I'm doing fine. So perhaps Polly also saw this as her opportunity to not only save her friendship with Lisa, but to get out of a very messy situation altogether. The lesson Polly took away from her part in the jog bra business was this, quote, never go into business with friends if you're not prepared to stab them in the back. And this is a really cool opportunity for me and Kelly to remember that we are in business together. It's fine. Yep. I mean, we're doing fine. We're 50-50. It's fine. Let's no, not add ever yeah. a third person. No, I'm also so fucking laid back. Um, so with the equal shares, Lisa and Hinda were able to work together, even if they didn't get along. They even created an advisory board of directors to act as an unbiased buffer. So if they were have ever having like a debate or an argument, they could go to the board and be like, well, what do you think as people who are who are only invested in this business succeeding and not pissed about something that happened three years ago? You know, which is a really good idea. <laughs> So their audience of women athletes was only growing, allowing the business to grow in turn. However, other sportswear and bra manufacturers seeing jog bra success were getting in on the game, forcing the small company to compete with corporations like fucking Nike. But after a decade of fucking Nike. (laughs) But after a decade of growing their business and coping with internal struggles, Lisa and Hinda were becoming burnt out. They had two choices to kick things up even higher and expand into department stores, which would take a ton of money and infrastructure. Like that was just going to be a fuck ton more money in work or to step away. And there is no wrong decision in that is the decision that is best for you. Like, I know we all want to be like girl boss, all about that hustle. But like, if your business is like fucking you up mentally, it is best to step away. In 1989, Playtex Apparel offered to buy Jog Bra Inc. And for once, Lisa and Hinda Hinda agreed and even came up with the same dollar amount that they would accept and sold the company in 1990. Lisa and Hinda split the profits 50-50. Polly, however, who had sold all of her shares, received nothing. I was really waiting to find someplace that like Lisa like shared some of the wealth. I didn't, but like yeah. her and her and Polly remain friends for the rest ha, or have remained friends. Yeah. So I think everything's okay, but I was like, oh, fucking April. Right. Like it's all this like, stress. Yeah. You just want to get out of it. I totally agree. But like if they could have just like thrown something your way for literally sewing the damn thing together. <laughs> anyway, she recalled, quote, I would have ended up with a pretty big paycheck if I kept my shares. I guess if I was poor and suffering, I would be upset. Lisa and Hinda had to work for every penny they got. So she's not, I, there's a little like, ah, uh, you know, what could have been. But she's also like, Lisa and Hinda earned their shares. Like they earned the money they got because they worked their asses off. So I, I think that's just such a healthy way to look at it. 
Like, I love Polly. She's so well-adjusted. So through the sales, uh, oh, excuse me, though the sales amount has never been disclosed, Hinda commented, quote, back then it seemed like a huge amount of money. Now it's nothing. They got so much value for what they bought. Lisa and Hinda stayed, oh, sorry, I scrolled too far. Lisa and Hinda stayed on as co-presidents of the jog bra line, but after only two years, Lisa left. According to her, quote, Hinda was up to her old tricks, claiming to be the inventor and talking about how she took two jock straps and sewed them together without mentioning my name or Polly's name. In response to, you know, these allegations, Lisa sent Hinda a cease and desist letter, and it would actually be their last communication for ages. The last time they communicated for a really long time was Lisa sending Hinda a cease and desist letter to basically be like, Jesus, you better not be fucking telling people you're the sole inventor without giving us credit. Right. Like, that's not okay. Yeah. That is malicious. So Hinda, who was ever the go-getter, stayed on with Playtex and even through the sale of Playtex to Sarah Lee. And she served on the board of Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, which would eventually acquire Keurig. Jesus. And she served in the Vermont State Senate for 10 years before retiring in 2012. She also ran for mayor. So she had her fingers in a lot of pie. A lot of corporate stuff, it sounds yes. like. And then a little bit of political. Well, and the thing is, like, based on kind of what I what we've gathered from her personality, all of that makes perfect sense. She's like, I'm going to go and do the thing. And then she does the thing. You know, there's not a lot of like, well, let me stop and think about this and the pros and cons. Like she just kind of dives into the next project. And that can be a really great quality, but every good quality has its drawbacks. So Polly continued her successful costume design career, working on several notable projects, such as The Muppets Take Manhattan, The Dark Crystal, and fucking Sesame Street. She's designing costumes for all of these. We have all seen seen her work and benefited from her work, which earned her eight daytime Emmys. I almost said enemies. (laughs) There were eight people who were like really mad about it, though, and they were all from Mississippi. No, um, her work earned her eight daytime Emmys for costume design, and she takes more pride in her costuming career than her part in inventing the first sports bra, which makes sense because honestly, while that was, I mean, really, it's such an incredible thing because there was nothing like it before, but it seems like she also got a lot more joy and fulfillment from her costume design career. Right, and there's probably less... Like, there was stress, but different stress. You're not potentially ruining friendships. It was work stress, not emotional relationship stress. Lisa, who, remember, suffered from epilepsy, joined the board of directors of the Epilepsy Foundation of America and even teamed up with Dr. Leslie Bell to create a new bra design called the Belize Compression Comfort Bra made for breast cancer survivors. So Lisa's got like two bras under her belt, two bra designs that she's contributed to. She went back to grad school because she had she had dropped out to focus on the jog bra. Um, and she earned her master's of arts and culture and spirituality from Holy Names University in Oakland, California, which is the most California degree and university name I have ever heard of in my life. She graduated from a shamanic studies program and is the author of two books, including Unleash the Girls, the untold story of the sports bra and how it changed the world and me. And like I was watching some interviews and she kind of reminds me, she, she's got this kind of new agey feel to her. 
And she reminds me a little bit of Frankie from Grace and Frankie. Yeah. You know, like, like the robes, the big, you know, just, and, and none of that is an insult. Like I'm loving her aesthetic. So in this book, she refutes the you go girl narrative that is often used when telling the story of the sports bra invention. She asserts that they were flawed human beings just like everyone else and that their story shouldn't be sanitized into a squeaky clean girl boss tale. She like she says something like our genitals didn't make us any more or less virtuous or prone to competition or greed or bad, you know, any of the drama like our genitals had no effect on that kind of thing. Men do it. Women do it. It doesn't matter. And I really like that because often when the story is told, it's like three friends got together to change the world and they did. But that is not the entire story. This also kind of really fucked up their relationships with each other. Even with the drama, Polly and Lisa remained close friends, even buying lakeside cabins next to each other. Which is what I want to do with you. Yes, I just want please. to hold hands in our Adirondack chairs, watching the loons float across the drinking wine so much wine right from the bottle right from the bottle because we're old and we've earned it it's good for the heart it's gonna be beautiful so while uh the jog bra brand which was last purchased by champion who's owned by haynes i'm like i'm pretty sure my bras are champion brand bras anyway the jog bra brand no longer exists but its legacy lives on in the creation of a multi-billion dollar industry (laughs) epilogue Oh, there's an epilogue. There is an epilogue before the legacy. Ooh. So Lisa, Polly, and Hinda's contributions to women's sports and sportswear have received increased attention. They were inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame and have reunited for interviews for USA Today uh, and Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation, like a bunch of these other things. So they've kind of been forced to talk again. And being forced to come together again to tell their story helped the women to come to terms with the drama and the hurt. And while the three women may not, you know, get together for cocktails and be like, oh my God, do you remember that one time? That was so crazy. They seem to have at least found a sense of peace in the story, even if it, I don't know if everything is like healed and hunky dory, but I, I, it seems like they've all kind of moved on from the conflict in some ways because remember you know Hinda's reaction to people being upset about her putting her name in the front was like are you fucking kidding me so there's still I think it's as good as it's gonna get legacy all three women are still alive, and while the jog bra name may no longer be in use, the legacy of their creation endures. Sports bras are synonymous with women's sportswear, and their place in sports has evolved from being hidden under clothing to be a totally acceptable workout top on its own. Um, there was a quote from Polly where she said something like, when I first saw women just wearing sports bras like to the gym, she, I, like, she was shocked. She's like, what the, oh my God, you're just wearing the bra? Like, it was shocking that it couldn't make that kind of transition. Um, The advances in design and comfort make athletics even more accessible and more comfortable for women of a variety of, shit, I can't think of another bra or breast euphemism. 
Thelma and Louise situations. She's just like over there rubbing her boobs and I was just waiting for something to come out of her mouth. I'm waiting for my breasts to give me inspiration and it was Thelma and Louise. I already said Tatas. Yeah. We are the Tatas and we're going to rock ya. It's from Bob's Burgers. I know. Um, I think you've like kind of hit all the like main ones. There's so many. There are a bunch of others I've never even heard of. But I... I tried to like focus on some of the mainstream ones. Baps was a new one for me. Um, but yeah, it's just more accessible and comfortable for women. The jog bra literally changed the game and the cultural landscape. But as Lisa said, quote, at the time, I had no idea about the cultural impact of the sports bra. We were in the throes of running a business. It was like trying to keep up with a cyclone. And that is the story of three women in a jog bra and the invention of the sports bra and the drama. The drama of the, inventing a sports bra. Could Jesus be, Christ. Like, you know, they're getting really into these like theater release biopics. This one would be so good. We need this. Yes. I, Tanya, I jog bra. <laughs> like, come on. Right? That would be like, so Like, no one's good. leg gets broken, but this is still really intense and dramatic. Yeah, it is. And just this whole idea of, like, yes, the invention was great, and it was revolutionary and had all these cultural impacts, and we're still using, like, that basic design today, but the internal struggles and the drama and, like, the effect it had on these three women, just so crazy. But also incredibly relatable. Like, we've all been in some, like, situation like this. You know, where you're trying to navigate friendships and alliances and different personalities and, like, trying to have your feelings validated but not understand why people are upset and just... The world is messy. The world is a shit show. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that is the story of three women and jog we don't live in the past because the past was the worst. To be fair, especially with Roe v. Wade being overturned, there is actually actually a period in time that I think we can point to where we actually had more rights than we do right now. There is a short period of the past that would be okay. Yeah. The rest of the past is the worst. Yeah, we, we... And like all these anti-trans, but it's just, it's frustrating. But um, I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about the phenomena of white lash. Are you familiar with that at all? White lash? Yeah. So it's kind of like, um, it's like racial whiplash. So when. Oh, yeah, I have heard of that. Yeah. When yep. like large advances are made um, specifically like for people of color, there's a disproportionate reaction from like the white power structure and then it kind of feels like oh my god things aren't getting better but really that's a sign that you're going in the right direction because people are trying desperately trying to pull you back and you're not you, you you continue to march forward and so I think especially with the increase in trans representation and acceptance there's there's like Trans whiplash yeah. and LGBTQ plus whiplash and, you know, even even white lash nowadays that that we're experiencing. And. It almost feels like putting alcohol on a wound, like it's going to sting and suck, yeah. but that means it's getting better. Right. And I think we just re- we really need to like it, it can be hard not to get discouraged, but we really need to stay the course and just fight harder than ever. Yeah, exactly. It's like 
We'll come out the other side eventually if we just keep fighting. Yep. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. So Kelly, who are you whining about? Who's your super fun story that has a bunch of euphemisms for boobs? It doesn't. It doesn't. Booby, 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 booby. Rocking everywhere. Boobie, no, boobie, not boobie, rocking, boobie, rocking everywhere. everywhere. Because of the <laughs> jog in bra. place. <laughs> Comfortable and stable. Yeah. Yeah. Can, um, can I just say, like, the stability of a bra, I, I was reading this, I was like, oh, my God, this is what I want in a relationship. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, a bad relationship is like a bad bra. <laughs> and why do you stay, keep wearing it? Yeah. Yeah. A new partner is actually okay. cheaper than a new bra. So right. ditch the crappy X and move on. You deserve it. You do deserve it. Fucking deserve you it. You also deserve nice, comfortable bras. Always. Treat yourself. Always. So I'm covering Emily Hobhouse. Hobhouse. I don't know. It just felt like a name that needed to be sung, sung in All a right. slightly operatic tone. All right. So, Emily was born on April 9th, 1860. Ooh. Roll back. Um, in St. Ive near Liskard in Cornwall. So, England. We're, we're still in England. Lister? Me, Lester? No, Liskard. Liskard? L-I-S-K-E-A-R-D. Okay, so it may not be Lester. Lester. I am convinced, though, we are still saying it wrong. But England, fucking get your shit together. <laughs> Spell things phonetically, goddammit. In Cornwall. I can pronounce that In Cornhole. Cornwall. In Cornhole, we trust. <laughs> it's got the juice. I would just... <laughs> it's a whole big lump of knobs. That song <laughs> is so catchy. Oh, my God. Okay, so I actually, like, first heard that song because my fellow was referencing it. And you're like, the fuck are you talking about? And then I got hooked. And then like, I I was driving Q to school. And of course, you know, we're driving through cornfields and she just goes in the backseat unprompted. It's corn. It's got the juice. And I'm like, God damn it. (laughs) It's everywhere. The first time I heard it, I was at, I was in St. Louis for the Ludo concert and there was 
a comedian that was one of their openers outside playing on a ukulele and that's the song she like she played it like twice and the first time I heard it I was like I was buying merch so I was like down the street a little bit and I was like the fuck is she singing about she's singing about corn and then the second time we were like standing and actually like watching her perform and I was like Damn, this song is catchy. <laughs> this song bops. Yeah, exactly. Oh my, this song has the juice. <laughs> the juice. <laughs> anyway, Juice right into my ear holes. <laughs> cornwall, not cornhole. Either way, it has the juice. It has the juice. And the it's Emily. It's a whole wall of knobs. <laughs> it's a whole wall of hob house. There you go. It's a whole wall of hobs. So Emily was the daughter of Carolyn and Reginald Hobhouse. I just love the name Reginald. Reginald Hobhouse? Um, they were an Angelican rector and the first archdeacon of Bodmin separately. So they're both like religious figures in churches. Oh, okay. Yeah, I had to look up what a rector was. It's in some, it's like, it's kind of like a pastor in some sects of Christianity. Rector? I hardly know her. Oh. dun 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 dun, dun. Her brother, she did have siblings. One of her brothers would grow up to be a peace activist. And yeah, so that's like, she grew up in a very progressive household, despite the fact that both of her parents were strong religious figures. But she, that means she also grew up in a household that was verily, verily, very, verily? very morally like right and wrong. Yeah. Um, her okay. mother. Can we start just saying verily? Can we start just speaking in medieval tones verily story yes um, please her mother would die when she was 20 and she would spend the next 14 years looking after her f- sick father after that oh fuck yeah funny thing she though, she used all of her mistake years taking care of her sick father yeah your 20s are when you're supposed to like really start to fuck up yep so when her father died in 1895 um, she went to Minnesota. Damn right she fucking like, did. She's like, I'm free to Minnesota. Okay, I'm feeling so much energy with Emily right now. I know. Because she also moved from the land of corn to Minnesota. <laughs> Different land of corn. <laughs> Different but, land know, of corn. Still. But spiritually identical. <laughs> so the reason she went to Minnesota... See, okay, like, I need to look into this more because, like, is there, like, a town named Minnesota somewhere? Because it didn't specify, like, Minnesota, U.S. It just said Minnesota. But then it also, it goes, to perform a welfare check among the Cornish mine workers living there. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like my Minnesota. Hashtag not my Minnesota. Um, But maybe it is. (laughs) But the trip was organized by the wife of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so she went there. While she was there, she became engaged to John Caw Jackson, and the couple would buy a ranch together in Mexico. She couldn't handle the winters. No. Totally very get few it. people can. Totally fucking um, get it, girl. However, the their relationship did not prosper, and in the end, their engagement was broken off, and she did not marry him, and she would return to England after losing out on most of her money um, on a speculative venture. Basically, she invested in something she shouldn't have and lost all of her money. If only, the best she, of us. if only she had invested in the jog bra. Yeah, right? I think this is a little bit too early. It's never too early for the jog bra. Um, so she moves back to England in 1898. In 1899, the second... Um, I want to say bore, but like... 
How, how I'm now I'm trying to remember how it was pronounced. Oh god, it was that like crazy Cockney accent again. It was like boa. Ba. Yeah, it was like ba. Anyways, boar. Well, it's like, you know, sometimes when they say an R, it's just yeah. a aw. So it's funny because like when you listen to it, yeah, in the British Cockney accent, it was like boa. And then ba. and then it was like American <laughs> boar. And it was, I was like so distinct. All right. Different. <laughs> What's boa? Um, the so, Bowen ba- Worcester. Um, when the second boar, 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 we're just gonna call it boar. Boar. Okay, boar. it's the boar war because it rhymes. <laughs> um, when when the second boar war broke out in South Africa in 1899, one of the liberal MPs in England named Leonard Courtney invited Emily to become secretary of the women's branch of the South African. Conciliation Committee, of which he was president of. Basically, like she was kind of known in the community as like someone that was raised in really morally upstanding places. That her family was very, um, act like activist driven, and so he was like, "Hey, like you were going and helping the miners in Minnesota. Do you want to go to South Africa and like basically like look into the situation there and how we can help the people. Okay. So, so she's seen as like a, she's known for her service work and they're like, Hey, do you want to like channel that energy over here where there's a war? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I go to a war torn area and just like make sure that no one's having their rights violated or being treated inhumanely. It should be fine by, by us. Yeah. Like, by us specifically. Um, she would, she wrote, um, of being an asked quote, it was late in the summer of 1900 that I first learned of the hundreds of Boer women that became impoverished and were left ragged by our military operations in the country. The poor women who were being driven from pillar to post needed protection and organized assistance. So basically she like heard about what was going on and all of these like things basically that they, cause it was the South African army was more like guerrilla warfare and so like yeah there was a lot of like women and children being left behind because like the men were going out to fight and mm-hmm. then the british were like taking was, i didn't dive into this a lot because i was like i don't need to know this depressing story so really quick i just want to do a really um unfair summary really really quick so england is on their colonization bullshit in South Africa. Yep. Is that what's happening? Yep. And the South Africans are like, no, get the fuck out. Yep. And this has resulted in the Anglo-Boer War. Yep. The second one. The second one. Because God forbid we learn our lessons. So I, Maybe I, England should just go fuck off. I Googled it because this is what I do. Um and so basically the Boer Wars are the military history of South Africa. And it's basically a chronicle of a vast period of time and complex history, obviously, that covers several civil wars, wars of aggression, self-defense wars, blah, 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 all within the country of South Africa. It is part of what was called the Scramble for Africa, which is basically yes. the invasion, annexation, division, and colonization of most most of Africa between the seven Western European countries. We, we've talked about this before, the Africa like say, scramble. For once, the U.S. was not involved. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were committing our own atrocities. Yes, we were doing our own shit. We yeah. were not involved in this, though. 
But yeah, so it's known as the Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War, or the South African War, and it's a conflict fought between the British. This one in particular was between the British Empire and the two Boer Republics, which is the South African Republic and the Orange Free State, which were both Mm -hmm. within the country of South Africa. Can I also say, I don't think I've ever heard the term of self-defense war. Like, hey, someone's trying to invade our country and we're like, get the fuck out. Like people always just say war and use that term interchangeably. But the context is important, like the war between Russia and Ukraine. Really, it's Russia is trying to invade Ukraine and Ukraine is defending itself. Um, And this one started in very much a way similar to I would call a lot of what happened to the the Native Americans in America defensive wars. Mm hmm. Um, and it's a lot of like a lot of times it's because we were like, oh, we want your land for something. And that is very much what this is about. I kind of like read a little further and basically the, the gold was found mm. in South Africa. And so the British were like, well, we want your gold. And the Boer were like, we don't want you here. Like, and we don't want you exploiting our land. And so they tried to like negotiate with them and like peacefully like resolve it. And then. You know, the British didn't want that. They occupied it. And then basically the the South Africans were like, well, we're not going to let you do this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Fucking colonialism. Shitty. So I love that they're sending this person there to like, hey, I just want to make sure everyone's okay while we invade and exploit this, right. this other country. And it kind of sounds like going into it, she knows that shit isn't going to be good because like yeah. the way she says it, she's like the Boer women that are were left impoverished and ragged by our military operations. She's like, so I know that it's not great. I don't think she knew how bad it was going to be, but she knew it wasn't great. I mean, yeah, generally when a country is in war, what's happening to their citizens is not going to be good. And yeah. But yeah, so she would found the Distressed Fund for South African Women and Children, um, basically to raise some money and get supplies, and then would sail to Cape Colony on December 7th of 1900 to supervise the distribution of the supplies she collected. So she's not doing any of that secondhand bullshit where she's like, oh, I gathered the supplies and I just sent it over there and someone will take care of it and I'm sure they'll get it eventually. She's like, no, I gathered all this shit, now I'm going to go hand deliver it. Yeah, which... To be fair, like, and this is more of a modern, like, interpretation. Like, if you're just donating money to a cause, it's not right. you're just, like, that's right. that's huge. Like, have you ever heard of the concept of the second disaster? Yeah. Yeah, so, well, so Kelly gets it. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it, the second disaster is what relief workers will call being inundated with donations of material supplies in the mm-hmm. wake of a disaster to the point where they don't have the people, the resources, or anything to handle all the donations. And that means a lot of the donations right. end up spoiling or go to waste. Like It's um, why modern times money makes more sense. It, it really does. No, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel as good as like sending a teddy bear. But honestly, the people on the ground know what's needed. Yeah. And the money is so flexible. They can buy whatever is needed. Because right. there, there was a story of like cases and cases and cases of bald water getting left on a tarmac because they literally did not have the people to process it. And the it got left sitting out in the sun where they couldn't use it. So I had to dump it out. Yeah, it was terrible. Like, that's not helping anyone. So yeah, just like, click the button, donate, 
and move on. Right. It doesn't feel like you're doing as much, but you're really helping a lot right. more. And back then, it's a lot different. Like, you know, in 1900, it's kind of like if someone doesn't go and deliver these supplies, they're not going to get delivered. There was no Red Cross. There is no Relief Foundations, you know, like. Yeah. She's like, this is my mission and I'm going to see it through. This is at a time where I literally don't understand how people got exactly. mail. <laughs> well, also, like, uh, she was on a boat for 20 days to get yeah. from England to South Africa. So that's a thing. It means God. she was on a boat during Christmas. I'm like, that would suck. Dude, being on a boat like, for not 20 like a days. Like, a cruise ship yeah. boat for Christmas. Just some, like, boat. Probably some war boat is my yeah. guess. God. And again, like that boat could have easily sunk for a million reasons. I don't yeah. understand how anyone no. got anything delivered, got their mail. I don't understand anything at all. Yep. So what she would write about arriving or why she arrived was, quote, I came quite naturally in obedience to the feeling of unity or oneness of womanhood. It is when the community is shaken to its foundations that abysmal depths of Priviation call to each other and that a deeper unity of humanity invinces itself. So basically she's like, I came because women needed me. I love that. Oneness of womanhood. Well, and I think it's like already with this story, I'm kind of being very wary oh, of yeah, the no, potential for like white. No, 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 not, not just the atrocities oh. that you have heavily alluded to. But the, like, the sense of white savior syndrome. Well, there's also, like, white privilege and yeah. there's a lot. Yes, there is a lot of that. But I like that she's she's not, I feel like there's a, it's a little less in her, at least, the way I read it. Because it sounds like she's not necessarily, like, I'm going and saving these people. She's like, hey, there's a war going on. And these, these women not necessarily don't need, like, saving, but, like shit's bad and I'm going to make sure they have what they need. Right, right. It's it, it feels like where she's coming from, it's not a, oh, these poor people, like, because they're lesser right. or they, you know. No, it's like, there's a war. It's like, their lives are being destroyed by this war and that sucks. Yeah. So when she had left England, she only knew about one concentration camp, the one at Port Elizabeth. On arrival, she found out about that there were about 45 in total within South Africa. Oh my fucking God. Yeah. So, so, okay, like the British built concentration camps. Yeah. Mainly for the women and children. What the yeah. fuck? Oh, this isn't shit. even, okay, n- not saying like POW camps are okay or humane, but like this isn't even like you're an agent of of aggression this is like hey you're a civilian get the fuck in here some of them had men but a lot of the men were fighting so they just took the women and children it's yeah it's a it's a i didn't look a lot into it because this has to do with a lot of like the conditions of the concentration camps not necessarily like how people ended up there yeah just but from reading what i did it sounded like it was a lot of women and children well and really the reason doesn't matter right exactly because it's wrong um like like with the japanese internment camps like it doesn't matter that people were feeling paranoid and threatened in the wake of Pearl Harbor. First of all, the Japanese hate had been building for a long time and this was the perfect outlet for it. Exactly. Second of all, you're literally imprisoning American citizens against their will. No, it's go fuck yourself. 
So once she got there, she did have a letter of introduction to the British High Commissioner that was there at the time, a man named Alfred Milner. Basically, it was through like a family friend who was a wife of someone that was like an undersecretary of blah, 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 blah. Basically, okay. but she had like a letter of introduction of like, hey, this is why I'm here. Like, give me some supplies, help me like travel within the country. It's like a written voucher. Exactly. Like, hey, you kind of have to help me. Right. So from him, she would obtain the use of two railway trucks subject to the provi- pr- approval of the army commander. So he's like, yeah, I can give you these. But then it's like, but you also kind of have to go through this, which I mean, they're at war. It makes sense. If the army needs them, it makes sense. And at the same time, it's like, come on. Don't you love bureaucracy? Um, so the army commander was a man named Lord Kitchener. Um, and she would eventually get approval from him and two weeks later receive the two railway trucks, which would only allow her to travel as far as Blom Fontaine, I think is how you pronounce it. Okay. Um, and then once she got there, she would only be able to take one truck of supplies for the camps themselves. It's like, that's pretty shitty. Like, basically, it's a, we're not really, we're going to give you as minimal of help as possible in getting yeah. this done. Yeah. Well, because they don't fucking care. No, they do not. The only reason they're giving her the time of day is because she has this letter from someone and they're doing the bare yeah, minimum center. To, to literally be like, well, we helped her as much as we could. So get off our asses. Mm-hmm. So she had persuaded the authorities slash the people, you know, the army to let her visit several of the British concentration camps and to deliver aid. Her report on the conditions of the camps um, were, was entitled Report of a Visit to the Camps of Women and Children in the Cape and Orange River Colonies. It was delivered to the British government in June of 1901, and as a result, a formal commission was set up and a team of official investigators was set up. That is after everything I'm about to talk about. But that's that's the end of it. Okay. So she goes there. She investigates the concentration camp. She comes back and she's like, guys, like, this is bad. Like, she exposes it. She exposes it. They set up a committee, blah, 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 blah. So that's after. So during she, what she finds, basically, it, it a lot of this is going to end up being her words because this is most of what she did with her life. Mm-hmm. So... In a nutshell, overcrowding and bad unhygienic conditions due to neglect and lack of resources were the causes of, uh, of a mortality rate that in the 18 months during which the camps were in operation reached a total of 26,370, of which 24,000 were children under 16, including infants. Oh my fucking god! Yeah, can someone two, do two thousand people survived in in the eighteen months they were in operation? Out of like these forty twenty six thousand, no, but like uh, these forty oh. some camps. Yep, forty five camps. That means children died at a rate of fifty a day. Oh my fucking god! Yep. Okay, so, so so there were like twenty thousand, approximately twenty six thousand people imprisoned here. Yep, and out of twenty six thousand approximate people, two thousand survived. The, 
No, 26,000 people died in these camps. Oh, okay. Of which 24,000 were children under 16 and infants. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So the majority were children. Yeah. Oh, my. Or infants, but infants are children. children. Yeah, no. Jesus Christ. Yep. So that was like the overarching report. So the following are a bunch of extracts from her report that make the extent of like the neglect that was going on by the authorities. You know, it was this, worse. Yeah, this is going to be really terrible. You know it so was just, worse than anything. You know, it was worse up. than what has been able to be documented. Yep. So these are, this is, these are literally just like bullet point. And I took some of them out because some of them were duplicated. And I'll, honestly, it would have been like a four hour episode just on this. Yeah. But so in some camps, two or even three sets of people would occupy one tent, 10 to 12 people are frequently herded together in tents, the cubic capacity of about 500 cubic feet. So it's like half of this office. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, 10 people shouldn't, couldn't fit in like this whole office. Right. Let alone half of it. Yeah. So remember, these are all direct quotes from her, which is why I'm not saying quote. Um, she said, it can never be wiped out of the memories of these people. It is, it presses hardest on the children. They droop in this terrible heat. Remember, we're in South Africa. Yeah. Um, and with insufficient, unsuitable, unsuitable food, whatever you do, whatever the authorities do, and they are, I believe, doing their best with very limited means. She She's very positive about this. I'm not as much no. just because of other atrocities that have happened since this. I'm like, mm, are they doing the I'm, best I, they can? I'm, I'm just going to say, like, the British, when it came to colonialism and this kind of thing, so they were never harsh. doing their best to take right. care of the native population. Right. They never were. And again, kind of what I was talking about earlier with like the privilege and the white savior, like that's just something that we all need to kind of be aware of. That apologizing, I do not like. Right. I don't either. I fucking don't. Yep. She said thousands of mostly physically unfit people are placed in conditions of life that they do not have the strength to endure. In front of them is blank ruin. If only the English people would try to exercise a little imagination and picture this whole miserable scene of entire villages rooted up and dumped in a strange bare place. Well, and she's saying if only the British people would imagine this. I think it's. I think that in particular was trying to drum up sympathy of like, no, guys, no, no. we need to not do this. No, I, I understand that. But she she's pleading with like the average British citizen back home who's like living at, you know, who's just, never going to see this. Yeah. But there are actual British citizens who are not only witnessing this, right. but perpetrating yeah. it. And she's like, if only you could imagine how bad this is. It's like your people are doing this right, like you're literally in the camp watching your own soldiers do this yeah like yeah. Uh, again and i understand try to drum up the public sympathy that's a good thing but this isn't like oh the british people really need you to the british people are actually doing something right now right and it's not good yeah she said the women in camp are wonderful they cry very little and never complain the very magnitude of their sufferings their indignities, loss, and anxiety seem to lift them beyond tears. Only when it cuts afresh at them through their children do their feelings lash out. So it's like she's watching all these moms and women be really strong until things are happening to their children. And I'm like, God, I can't even. Well, and I think it's not even inherently a, a, an issue of strength. I think it's just a complete 
it's shock, it's disbelief, it's a you can't comprehend like what's happening because it seems right. so unbelievable and you can't process that it's happening to you, but then you see it happening to your child and that kind it of breaks you. Yeah. So I like this one. I found interesting though. Cause she was like, some people in town still assert that the camp is a heaven of bliss. However, so she's, she's like the British citizens in camp think or British citizens in town think that these camps are okay. However, this is what I'm actually witnessing. So she oh says, however, God. I was at the camp today and in just one little corner, this is the thing I found. The nurse, underfed and overworked, just sinking onto her bed, hardly able to hold herself up after coping with some 30 typhoid and other patients. With only the untrained help of two Boer girls, cooking as well as nursing to do. To do. Next tent, a six-month-old baby gasping out its life on its mother's knee while two oh, or three God. others are drooping sick in that same tent. That's she, just so. So she, she's like, she's awful. like, pe- people here are saying that the camps are wonderful, but this is what's actually happening. Yeah, and also like in that scene, you know, there there's a nurse who's trying to treat the prisoners, and that comes off as kind of a sympathetic scene, and then you remember. The British are literally making this happen right. because they are waging war on a foreign country for their resources. Yeah. Like this, yep. do, none of this has to be happening. This is a choice. Yep. Oh my fucking God. So she says, it is such a curious position, hollow and rotten to the heart's core to have made all over the state, large, uncomfortable communities of people whom you call refugees and say you are protecting, but who call themselves prisoners of war, compulsory, detained and detesting your protection. They are tired of being told by officers that they are refugees under quote, the kind and beneficent protection of the British in most cases, there is no pretense that there was treachery or ammunition concealed or food given or anything. It is just that an order was given to empty the country. Though the camps are called refugees, they are in reality a, ver- a very few of these, perhaps only half a dozen in some camps. It is easy to tell them because they are put in the best marquees, have had time given to them to bring furniture and clothes, and are mostly self-satisfied and vastly superior to the others in the camp. Very few of them are refugees, if any of them. This is not a situation where people are fleeing war and you know, collecting in these refugee camps where people are coming to try and help them. They are being imprisoned and told, well, you should be grateful because we're helping you. Yeah. Even though we literally came and fucking turned your worlds to dust. Again, the British are the ones doing this. They don't get to be like, yeah, but we're helping you. No, no. Right. War is not humanitarian aid. Yep. You cocks. Yeah. I'm I'm getting there. We're we're getting to the end of this section at least. So they, she says this, those who are suffering most keenly and who have lost the most either of their children by death or their possessions by fire and sword, such as those reconcentrated women in the camps have the most conspicuous patience and never express a wish that their men should be the ones to give way. It must be fought out now, they think, to the bitter end. It is very costly business upon which England has embarked, and even at such a cost, hardly the barest necessities can be provided and no comforts. It is so strange to think that every tent contains a family and every family is in trouble. 
lost behind poverty in front, sickness, deprivation, and death in the present. But they are very good and say that they have agreed to be cheerful and make the best of all of it. The camp folk were very surprised to hear that English women cared a rap about them or their suffering. It has done them a lot of good to hear that real sympathy is felt for them at home. And so I am glad I fought my way here if only for that reason. So most of her stuff does not feel like white saviorism until Mm -hmm. I got to this one. And I was like, I was like, she's saying like, oh, these women don't want their men to stop fighting. Probably true because they're fighting for their homeland. Exactly. But then to be like, to be like, oh, they were surprised to hear that the English cared. Also probably true. But then like to be like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm here because they're glad that I'm here. And I'm like, honestly, they just don't want to be in that camp. Yeah. Like, no. Like, yes, it's good that you're there and you're giving them basic necessities. And it would be better if you were doing something to make it so that this wasn't happening. And like I and again, like. Emily is not waging this war. No, she is not perpetuating it per, perpetuating it as an individual but there's definitely some but white that, that whole that like one. oh people back home feel really bad for you right, people like, back in the country where the military who's destroying your your country came from they think this sucks mm-hmm. and like maybe that does give people some sense of hope of like ooh maybe someone outside this who might have power cares right but that's not going to help get you out of a literal concentration camp right. where you are being held by a foreign invading power. I do think it's great that like if, if and people they, are dying around you, if they really are like, we're going to make the best of it. I think that's great because yeah, like at a certain point it's like, I don't think that that's what they're doing. I think that's what that, that's what she thinks they're doing, but I don't think it's a, we're making the best of it. It's a, we're doing what we can to survive. I was going to say that's a survival tactic. Your your um your mental state is so important in right. survival situations. Like having a routine, trying to stay positive. Like like you hear stories about people stranded out at sea and they imagine like the food that they want to eat and that actually helps yep. their mentality. Right. And I'm sure for these women, like if it was me and my husband was out fighting for our country, that would help me thinking about like, no, he shouldn't give in. He shouldn't just lay down his arms. That would help me get through. So no wonder that these women are like, they don't want their men to back down. I'm like, no shit. Well, also they are being invaded. Can you imagine a Jewish person, person in a concentration camp hearing about the allies and being like, no, they should put down their weapons. They we're, should we're really fine. put down their weapons. Like, yeah, of course. Right. Oh, I know. It's so that that's a, that was all about like the women or not the women, the people in the tents. There's two other sections, and then it kind of talks about more like the system and how she fought against it in general. So the next section is just like about the living situation. I kind of already touched on like a bunch of people were like living in tents, but basically I'm, that's I'm the gonna thing. I'm going to try and taper my outrage because otherwise no, we will exactly. be here until Monday. <laughs> so again, this is, we're in South Africa. It's fucking hot. So basically this is what it says. Imagine the heat outside the tents and the suffocation inside. The sun would blaze through the single canvas and the flies would lay thick and black on everything. There's no chairs, no tables, nor any room for it. Only a deal box. I don't know what a deal box is. Shitter, I think. Okay. Yep, you're right. No, 
No, it's not. Ooh. This is a deal box standing up on its end, serving as a wee pantry. So it must just be a some sort of box. A wee pantry. Yeah. So they put all their food in it. Okay. Um, in this tent live Mrs. B's five children, three grown up, and a little kefir servant girl. I I think kefir is a, a like a subsect of one of the South African like nations. Okay. Um, R- really quick blanket apology if any of these terms yes, are are no these longer are direct appropriate. <laughs> um, we genuine genuinely don't know better, and they're only be being used in quotes. Yes. So many tents have more occupants than this. Mrs. M has six children in camp. All are ill. Two are in the hospital with typhoid and four sick in the tent. A terrible evil just now in this dew. It is so heavy and comes through the single canvas of tents wetting everything. All the morning, the gangways are filled with the blankets and odds and ends regularly turned out to dry in the sun. The doctor told me today he highly disapproves of tents for young children and expects the high mortality rate because of it. Because it's just so fucking hot. Yeah, but also you're cramming like three families into one tent. I think the presence of the tent is not the primary issue here. Right. I think it's just everything. Also typhoid. Yep. It... It spreads so quickly. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot so, of people. So, like, if your kids are home, everyone's getting it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of um, a lot of the people uh, in the Holocaust who were sent mm-hmm. to the the ghettos, typhoid was a huge issue. And actually, um, oh my god, oh my god, I'm blanking on her name, Irina Sendler. Yep. One of the reasons she was able to infiltrate the ghettos to provide help is because she was a social worker. The sol- the SS soldiers didn't want to go in for fear of getting of typhoid. typhoid. Yep. And she's so like, well, I'll go in and check it in. out. Yep. Yeah. So that was about the tents. The next part is hygiene, which obviously we know is not great. Basically, okay, so the first bullet in this one is soap has been unobtainable and none is given with the rations. With much persuasion and weeks of requisitioning, soap is now given occasionally in very minute quantities, certainly not enough for clothes or personal washing. Next bullet. We have much typhoid and are dreading an outbreak, so I am directing my energies to getting the water from the Motor River boiled as well as as we all swallow typhoid germs whole and drink that water, so say doctors. Which is true. And then... It, they, she said, yet they cannot boil at all for first fuel is very scarce. That which is supplied weekly would not cook a meal a day. And they have to search that for the already bare, um, on the already bare hills for supplies. There's hardly a bit to be had. Second, there is no extra utensils to hold the water to be boiled. I propose, therefore, to give each tent a pail or crock and get a proclamation issued that all drinking water must be boiled. Can, can I also just say they're talking about the lack of supplies and rations and things. And, I'm like, and I, I just want to remind everyone, it's not that there's a lack of supplies and rations. It's that there's a lack of supplies and rations. Getting to the camps. Getting to these camps. Yep. Because it's all being funneled into the effort to invade this country. Yeah. Okay. So that was all about like the camps itself. And now this is kind of about how she feels and then like the after effects of what what she did basically. So she called it the cruel system, which I def, I mean, I probably would have used harsher words than that, but she said above all, one would hope that the good sense, if not the mercy of the English people, 
eye roll, will cry out against the further development of this cruel system which falls with crushing effect upon the old, the weak, and the children. May they stay in order to bring in more and yet more. Since Old Testament days has ever a whole nation been carried captive. I like that she's like, guys, what the fuck are we doing? Like everyone but in knows, a really eloquent way. Everyone knows the Old Testament is like the most dark and metal one. This is Old Testament bad. And like for such a religious society, I'm sure that rang true. Because that's, I mean, the Old Testament is what scares the crap out of you. Right. So late in 1901, kind of as she was finishing up a lot of her like cycle of the camps, the camps ceased to receive new families and conditions did approve in some of them. But the damage is already done at this point. It's been... 18 months. Historian Thomas Pankenham writes of one of the policies um, of the camps as such. Quote, no doubt the continued hullabaloo at the death rate. I love that he called it that. I'm sorry. Hullabaloo at the death rate. Um, Can we stop using cutesy language I to know. discuss mass murder? I'm like, guys, come on. God, but this is the direct quote. So like, I do not make light of mass murder. This person, this historian does. But so he said, no doubt the continued hullabaloo at the death rate in these concentration camps. And some of Milner's, which was one of the MPs at the time, belated agreement to take over their administration, help changed Kritchner's mind, which was the military commander at the time. Okay. Um, the the only, the, okay. I just want to say the only way using the word hullabaloo in that context is like, if, they're kind of being tongue in cheek the right. way that like I, that's what I'm thinking. The people at the it, it time is in, viewed as it is in like not double yeah. quotes, but like single quotes. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't I sorry. I had a really I do, strong I think reaction. Right. I, to think, that. I think it is tongue in cheek. I don't want to put I don't want to put still. this on that person. I think it was the way um, he's perceiving that people at the time are perceiving it. Yeah. As like, everyone's throwing a fit about all these people dying. So I guess we have to like right. deal and with it. And I think it. he's like, guys. Like, that's a serious fucking yeah. thing. Like, these are war crimes. Can you imagine, though, if Hullabaloo was in, like, proper quotes where he literally, like, found an archival well, letter where it's like, it that. yeah, someone's writing, it's like, we're getting a lot of Hullabaloo about the death rate. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be, I would not even be surprised. Right. In oh, the yeah. least. No. Okay. So finishing this quote, by mid-December at any rate. Kritchner, the military commander, was already circulating all commanders with instructions not to bring in any women children that they cleared from the country, but leave them with the guerrillas. It was viewed as a gesture to liberals on the eve of the new session of parliament at Westminster as a shrewd political move. So basically, they're like, okay, he did it to be political. Um, However, it also made excellent military sense in that it it was going to greatly handicap the guerrillas because now they had to take care of their own women and children. It was effective precisely because, contrary to the liberals' conviction, it was less humane than bringing them into the camps, though this was of no great concern to the military people at the time. Honestly, they say it was less humane, but I'm like, I don't think it was, because they probably just went about their regular lives. I mean, I'm not saying it was good, but they're not being kept prisoner. Also, also, like, okay, and, and, and this is... I, it bothers me, um, them talking about this and like the pros and cons to the, to a military campaign, but I just want to point out, they're saying that it's actually more beneficial militarily wise, militarily to not put them in concentration camps yet. They did it. 
like, like no, that this, just this makes was it after. seem. This was like, so this started in 1989. This was in 1901. So this was like toward kind of the mid end of the war. And they were like, okay, maybe, maybe we'll stop putting people in. Like, so they, it was kind of like when they were like, okay, we'll stop putting people in concentration camps. But yeah, they had been doing it for almost two years already. Yeah. But it just seems like even from a callous and strategic perspective, it was more beneficial for the military to not engage in this horror. Yeah. And they still did it. And then the only reason they stopped was because of uproar. And then they're like, well, it's actually better for us militarily. So dime out about it. Right. It's like, it's so then stupid. why were you doing it in the first right. place? Yeah. Everyone's bitching about rations. And it's like, why are you spending all these resources imprisoning people? Right. Women and children who are just dying. Just, just let them be in their villages and Good. leave them alone. And then, and, and this is this is us just bitching about how the British are behaving while invading the country. We're not even addressing the fact that the British have caused this entire situation right. like by this invading is another country. Fault. They have created this situation, and all of these victims are literally responding to it, right, in a very natural way. Yeah. yeah. God. So, unfortunately, we're at. The worst part, probably. I'm sorry. I mean, we all haven't... of this is terrible. But I'm sorry. Weird. But you know how, like, there was an Auschwitz during, yeah, World War Two. We're I... we're at the Auschwitz part of this war. I'm just upset that we haven't crested yet because I was first sure that we yeah. had crested. Nope. <laughs> so Emily would arrive at the camp at uh, Bloemfontein on the 24th of January in 1901. And this was after visiting most of the other camps. And she was shocked by the conditions at this in camp in particular. Quote, they would go without, they went to, they would go to sleep without any provisions having been made for them at all and without anything to eat or drink. I saw crowds of them along the railway lines in the bitterly cold weather in pouring, because this is January, in pouring rain, hungry, sick, dying, and dead. No soap was being dispensed. The water supply was inadequate. No bedstead or mattresses were procurable for these individuals. Fuel, fuel was scarce and had to be collected from the hills by the people themselves. The rations were extremely meager. And when, as I frequently experienced, the actual quantity dispensed would fall short of the amount prescribed, it would, it would just simply mean famine. So she was like, not only like were the rations that they were supposed to be getting not enough, but most of the time they weren't getting the rations they were supposed to be getting. Yeah. Which I'm like, that's just shitty. I also like listening to that is, is really hard. Cause I think you can, you know, you know, we, we have something of a reference from like learning about the Holocaust and other atrocities. Um, but the way she's describing it is very factual there's no flourish there's not a lot of adjectives of like the horrific condition you know in a way i think that's worse no but what i'm saying is she is just reporting basic facts right she is adding no drama she's adding no emotion to it and it is still really hard to listen to like like she's literally like almost just making a list yep 
She was of just like, all these are the, the things horrible I things saw. that Here's are going down. all the down. Like, dots and checkpoints that I yeah, saw. Yeah, and it's... It is, she doesn't have to say more. Yeah. And, and and when you, especially when you put it into perspective of everything she's already written about, and she's like, hey, you thought that right. was bad? This, this is, is worse. even worse. Yeah. So what most distressed Emily was the sufferings of the undernourished children in this camp. Diseases such as measles, bronchitis, pneumonia, dysentery, and typhoid invaded the camp with fatal results. Very few tent. There were very few tents at this camp and not enough to house all the all the persons, most of them children in this camp. But I thought the tents were the problem. <sighs> she would write a collection later in life called Stem ut de Verlude, which is Voices of the Past. I don't know why I said that with a German accent. Um, but in this book, she recalled the plight of one girl in particular. Um, unless you kind of want nightmares, which this definitely did give me. Do not Google this person's name. Um, but this, it is the plight of a, a girl named Lizzie Van Ziel. She was the daughter of a, a Boer combatant who had refused to surrender. So this is one of the people that was definitely not a refugee. That was definitely basically a prisoner of war because her dad was a fighter. Yeah. Um, this kid was six years old at the time and would die at this encampment. According to Emily, this girl was treated harshly and placed on the lowest rations because of her father. Oh, my God. As, she, she's being punished. Yeah. Again, this isn't... She's six. This isn't a lack of resources or a lack of, you know, people and no, time. This, this is, is people being cruel. This is punishment. After a month, she was moved to the hospital that was about 50 kilometers away from the concentration camps because she was suffering from starvation because she was placed on the lowest rations. Unable to speak English? Duh. Can you Um, imagine these people yelling at you in a language you don't even understand? And you're six years old. She was labeled an idiot by the hospital staff who were unable to understand her because she didn't speak English. One day she would start calling for her mother and, and another Boer woman, Mrs. Botha, who was working in the hospital went over to comfort her telling her that she would see her mother again soon but was was quote this is a direct quote was briskly interrupted by one of the nurses who told her not to interfere with the child because she was a nuisance this is the point where i was writing these notes that i had to get up and walk away from my computer for like a day because i was so angry (laughs) And I am, I'm still like, I'm, I'm so angry that I'm going to cry because I'm angry and sad. And just like the world makes me mad. This is a six year old child. Yeah. And the person's like, don't comfort her. She's a, she's a nuisance. I'm like, excuse me. Also, they're calling, excuse you. Also, they're calling her a moron because she doesn't understand the language of an invading country. They don't understand her either. Why she the, like. Yeah, why is she the idiot? It's it's this dehumanization. Oh, 100%. Because not only have they dehumanized the people of South Africa already through through yep. this war, but they're like, well, she's a nuisance. She's an idiot. She's, you know, uh, she's an enemy because they're, they're, they. Yep. She is six fucking years right. old. She has nothing to do with this. It does not matter what her father is this or is, is not doing. She has nothing to do this with this. This is like a kindergarten-aged yep. child. Yep. Like, there's a good chance she barely speaks her own language. 
All right. We're getting through this. Okay. So after all of this, Emily's kind of contemplating like what she can do. Makes sense. Like she's like, shit is so terrible. I literally don't know what to do. So she's like, I'm going to at least try to help stop the spread of these diseases. If I can like get them soap. Cause remember this is the concentration camp that they had no soap. Yeah. And so she's like, I'm going to at least do that. Like get them soap, get them clean water at least start on the like process of maybe not killing everyone because of diseases. It, at, at this point, it's, it's damage control. Exactly. You you can't stop the damage that's been done or the damage that's happening. You can only try and lessen the impact. Right. Like, like anything that she can do is just, I, yeah, it, it, her intentions and how hard she tries doesn't matter. There's no way that no. she can fight against this nope. entire systematic yeah. destruction of, of, a of human life. Yep. But she did what she could and it was a fight. It was a struggle because of course they didn't want to give in to her. But eventually after fighting with the commanders, fighting with the people in charge of the camp, fighting every little step of the way, she eventually got soap, straw, tents, and kettles to boil drinking water listed as necessities for every single person in the camp. Wow. She would distribute clothes that she either brought herself or would common, like basically commandeer from other people and supply it specifically more toward like the pregnant women. She would also get them mattresses because most of the, remember I meant when I mentioned this camp in particular, most of the people were sleeping on the ground, but particularly the pregnant women. Um, And she said she could not forgive what she called quote, crass male ignorance, helplessness and muddling. I rub as much salt into the sore places in their minds because it is good for them. And I can't help melting a little when they are humble and confess that the whole thing is a grievous and gigantic blunder and presents the most almost insoluble problems that they don't know how to face. So I was so proud when I found this quote and I almost cut it off because I'm like, God, I was so proud of her that she's like, okay, these guards are ignorant. They're, they're, you know, that they're perpetuating this helplessness. They have no idea what's going on but I'm going to remind them of these atrocities that they're committing. Well, and I'm like, good for her. I and think, I was great at the beginning, but then at the end of the quote, she's like, but I can't help but melt. And I'm like, no, I, Emily. I think, I think what it is, it's, it's not that they don't know what's going on. I, I know that's not what you mean by saying that. It's, I think they've become desensitized. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this isn't a big deal to them. Or it's a chain of command. And it's her reminding them like you are like committing fucking war crimes against other human beings. And when they kind of go, oh, shit, like she sees as a victory. And I'm not saying it's it's not. I'm sure I I will say I I felt I also cringe at the end of that quote. I also think Emily really needs a fucking win. Yeah. (laughs) I think I think she's looking for a win wherever she can get it. And if it's making the people committing these atrocities feel bad about it. And I think this is before the Milner study. Is that the uh, Stanford one or the electroshock one? No, this is the electroshock one. Oh, yeah. Because that came after World War Two, because World War Two. One of the things a lot of the German soldiers said was like, I was following orders. I was following orders like. 
I didn't think it was that bad. And people were like, how could you? And then he did yeah. the study and they were like, oh shit. Okay. People actually like, are, well, will, will and, do that. And it's one of the things they found in that study is that if someone else is willing to take responsibility, people you, are significantly more likely to hurt other people. Yeah. You are, you feel unleashed. You yep. feel more comfortable committing atrocities. So I think it's her trying to remind them you are responsible right and then for being this. like oh, you shit. are doing this right. that's probably how she got them soap and stuff yeah um god so like, obviously eventually emily would return to england and she would receive scathing criticism and hostility from the british government and a lot of the media after she published her report cuz she made sure it went public too good for her she would eventually succeed though as i said in obtaining more help for the Boer citizens. They would eventually, like I said, um, uh, create what was called the Fawcett Commission to investigate um, the claims, which I'm like, really? You don't believe her? Like, you have to investigate the claims? Wow. Um, And the reason it was called the Fawcett Commission is because it was set up under a woman named Millicent Fawcett. Um, And, of course, Millicent Fawcett went over there and was like, yeah, no, everything Emily said is 100% correct. Like... Y'all are terrible. Yeah. Um, so um, Emily would attempt to return to Cape Town um, later that same year in 1901, but was not permitted to land and was eventually deported five days after arriving without being given a reason. Probably the British were like, no, like you ratted us out. Go away. I, I'm still kind of shocked that they sent her in the first place, but I wonder if they were just expecting her to be like, it's fine. Right. Like, because especially like... In some of the quotes where she was like, everyone in town thinks it's wonderful, but this is what's actually going on. Yeah. So I'm like, I wonder if they, ex- I kind of wonder if they expected her not to actually go into the camps. Yeah. But to just like talk to people and be like, oh, everything's fine. You know, because yeah. that's what some people definitely would have done. Well, I'm just going to say they fucked around with Emily and they found yeah, out. Right. <laughs> um. So, yeah. They wouldn't let her land that time, and she felt like she never received justice for her work or, like, got to see what actually happened. Um, early the next year, she would go to Lake Annecy in the French Alps, and she would write a book called The Brunt of the War and Where It Fell on all that she had seen during her tour in South Africa, how it made her feel, like, everything like that. I, like, part of me wants to read it, and part of me is like, I don't think I could handle it. I, I also... I mean, so many victims from this, we're we're never going to hear their stories. And and I think that's one of the upsetting things about this story. Like, I'm really glad we're talking about Emily and, you know, the the effort she made. I would love to, like, hear stories from the other side, though. I was going to say she was not one of the victims of it. Like, in her own way, she suffered, but she was not one of the victims of this and so many of those people died or we're never going to hear their stories. Yep. And so I'm glad that Emily wrote her story. So at least there could be some firsthand account of what was going on well, and, and I, what was being done to done to people. Like she told the story of that little girl. And so I'm, I haven't read it. And so I'm hoping maybe she tells other people's stories of yeah. like, these are the people like, I don't know if it's her story or if it's like, hey, these are the people I met and these are their stories and yeah. I'm just recounting them. Right. 
But I mean, it's the documentation of this kind of thing is so important. Because I'm sure the British are just like, nope, shut up. Nobody talk about it. Let's go away. Like, look at what the Germans did. Yeah. Also, can we just remember this is one country. This is one incident of colonization. From one, like, remember this is during like a thing where like seven countries are trying to take over Africa. God, was it? Was it Sweden who was uh, really, they were trying to colonize the Congo and it was re- like. A lot of them were real. It's, I know, but I, it- the, the Congo in particular I, has, a, has a reputation yeah. among the colonization stories for being particularly horrific, which is saying a lot considering what we are learning about right now. Well, and I just, I don't find it funny, but like it frustrates me to no end that these countries that did. It was Belgium that tried to... Belgium. I was like, I'm pretty sure none of the Scandinavian nations were involved in the colonization of Africa. So I Googled it. You're Um, right, it was Belgium. It was bad. But like, I just find it so, again, I don't want to say funny, but like interesting that these countries, these European countries were so quick to point the finger at Germany and be like, look at all the terrible crimes they're committing. When during colonization... They did the exact same fucking thing. Yeah. Like, this is just as bad. Yeah. Anyways, we're almost done. So after the war, so about a year later, so she left Africa, South Africa in 1901. The war ended in May of 1902. So about a year later, she was able to return to South Africa where she saw, where she helped with assisted of uh, the assistance of healing wounds inflicted by the war tried to support whatever efforts were re- aimed at rehabilitation and reconciliation. So she's like, I'm just here to do whatever I can again. Yeah. Like it's a little bit of white savior, but also just a little bit of like, I saw how bad it was. Honestly, I, and in a story like this, I think that's always something we should be wary of. But in this case, I really think it is like, right. I, this is the least right. that she can do. What I think is really interesting and neat, I think, um, Margaret Clark and Emily set up these schools of like home industries, basically, is what they called it. The first being in Philopolis. Um, and they would teach the young women, most of these young women that no longer have fathers, no longer have husbands, because the British won, I think. I don't actually know who won. But it was terrible. Terrible shit happened. And the war didn't go very well. But basically, they taught these young women spinning and weaving and lace making so that they could have stuff that they could sell, mostly to the British, to make a profit to live as well as they possibly could in the situation that they were in. Again, it's and and I'm not criticizing them for this at all. Um, Because they're really trying to do the best considering the situation. But again, it's it's damage control. Exactly. Like, it's not great. And I'm not trying to, like, say Emily was an angel or anything like that. I'm just simply stating, like, this is what she went back and did. And the thing is, like, she's not even controlling from damage she did. Like, yes, it was her country that did it. Right. But, like, she's just like, yeah, we were pretty shitty and, like, I don't know what else to do. I I think she is doing the best that she can as... An individual. Right. You know, when she, when she's campaigning and, you know, trying it's, to get these supplies, she's one person who's exactly. just bugging the shit out of everyone until she gets what she wants. Which, respect to that. Like, 
oh my God, right. this is the only time it's okay to be like a Karen where you're right. like, I want to speak to your fucking manager because I need some goddamn soap over here. Exactly. Um, unfortunately, she would end up um, returning to England. Um, I mean, not unfortunately, I guess. And it was like five years later. Like she spent a long time there. Yeah. Um, but her own ill health would force her to return to England. Um for a little while to recover, she would then travel again to South Africa for the uh, inaugura- inauguration of the National Women's Monument at Bellefontaine. So, like, at at oh, that location where that camp God. was. Um, unfortunately, she wouldn't end up being able to make it because of her health. She got, like, halfway there and had to stop. Um, she was able to pass on her speech, a lot of which called for reconciliation and goodwill, goodwill between races, which I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that because really it should have just been an apology. Yeah. Um, but basically it was read for her and it did receive great acclaim from both nations. Um, I think we also need to acknowledge the, the time period again, like it's, it's not, it's not a pass. But I, I think right. I think something we need it's to acknowledge. It's 2020. It seems and- like Emily is really trying to do the best she can in the time with the resources and the abilities right. that she has. And I mean, reading the story both on the back of the bottle and some other things, I don't want to discount like what she did do because the people of South Africa, particularly the women that she did help, are really grateful. Yeah. Did say she did help. Did did say like she was a really powerful force in getting mm-hmm. them help and getting them back on their feet. So I don't want to discount that. And I realize like a lot of what I'm saying sounds like I am, but yeah, it's a lot of the hindsight is 2020. And obviously like this was over a hundred, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. And like, I, I know we have been, I really, really, I think this comes down to an opinion. I, I think we have been, um, critical of Emily in a lot of ways we're also viewing her story from a modern day lens with a more advanced understanding of colonialism and its long-lasting impacts um but thesis statement I think she really tried to deliver the maximum amount of help and the maximum positive impact that she could as a single person during this time. Right. Like, I'm not, you know, we, we can comment and like quibble about, you know, well, that exactly. was, that, maybe that wasn't a great thing to say. You and know, at the time, maybe it was. But I, I really think that I, I I'm, I, it's yeah, hard. Just, this one's a hard one. Like, I fell, I fell farther down a rabbit hole than I wanted to in this one. And I ended up getting really angry. Yeah. And now I feel bad because I put you in that hole. No, no. Okay. Here's the thing though. It's like, we always say like, this story is hard. A lot of these stories are really hard, but sometimes they're the most important ones to tell. We're almost done. I didn't know about any of this. No. The the most I know. one of those things like living in the Americas. Yeah. And so I'm really interested if we have any British listeners out there, do you learn about these wars or is this one of those things that's kind of just like, like a lot of, until recently, a lot of like, America's history with the Native Americans was kind of shoved under the rug. It Even, was very quiet. It was very like, we don't talk about this because we did some horrible shit. So yeah. I'm curious if in the British schooling system, do they talk about this at all? Or is this another one of those things that's just kind of like, we're not going to talk about this? Well, I know from listening to British podcasters, I know that, or I should say English podcasters, 
Um, the way that English children learn about the history with Ireland versus how the Irish children learn about it and then how it actually happened is very different. Like the British children or the English children get a very sanitized view of it. And like, it's very much about the justification of, of, you know, colonialism and and all, and all these atrocities, you know, it's yeah, not good. There's still a lot of, um, there's still a lot of damage. Yep. So I'm just curious. Anyways. I'm sorry. Keep going. Emily obviously would hold on to a lot of her beliefs about war and helping people during war well into the First World War because she was alive during it. And she, and she would protest vigorously yeah. against World War One. She would organize writing, singing, and she would gather a bunch of women together and um, do... Um, write a letter called the open Christmas letter, which was addressed to the women of Germany and Austria, basically like kind of being like, Hey, like how can we help you? And through her offices and like her campaigning, she was able to help thousands of women and children and ensure that they were fed daily for more than a year in central Europe during and after world war one. God. Um, South Africa actually would contribute liberally toward this effort because of what Emily had done for them during the Boer War. And that, I think that, you know, like we've been, we've been kind of like throwing our opinions out. I think that says a lot that even in the wake of this horrible invasion and Mm -hmm. genocide, like all of this, that the country of South Africa is like, Oh, Emily Hobhouse needs some help. We got this. Right. Like how because she was she she was there gave for a us. shit about us when no one else did. Right. And clearly, like her writing that paper got a commission going that got shit to actually change. Yeah. You know? Um, so in fact, it was one of the wives of like one of the presidents of the like the orange section of South Africa. Um, who ended up being a lifelong friend, actually, of Emily that was like, hey, like, let me send you this money directly so you can help these people, mm-hmm. which I think is great. Um, she would go on to become an honorary citizen of South Africa for her, her humanitarian work there. Oh. And um, unbeknownst, unbeknownst to her, some of the like higher ups in the African government would collect a sum of 23 thousand euros um within south africa to give her just because they knew she wasn't doing well and so she would she was able to purchase a house in cornwall with that money that is now part of the porthminster hotel that you can go and visit um that that breaks my heart like like, like it breaks my heart but in a good way that they're like like, like she, they're like, let us help you. Well, she, you helped us. Let us help you. It makes me, I'm glad that she had a positive impact to the point where they kind of kept up this, like this, like South Africans kept up this relationship and this. Yeah. They like genuinely cared about caring her, which I think is for amazing. her. And I think that's a real testament to what sh- her help meant to them. Which, yeah. like we said, we're losing a lot of voices in this story. We're not hearing from the the survivors and the victims. Right. But those kinds of acts are very telling. Yeah. So Emily would die in Kensington in 1926. Her ashes are ensconced in um, 
a a niche is what they called it in the National Women's Monument in Bellefontaine. Like, so back where that concentration camp is in that National Women's Monument that she wasn't able to get to because she was sick. Oh, that's where they put her ashes because she is regarded as a heroine in South Africa. Oh, my God. So South Africa was really sad that she died in the Cornish press in Cornwall. They didn't even mention it. Because she exposed the nation shame. Yeah, fuck them. They, yep, they do not know, have like, the God juice. Damn it, Britain. God damn um, it. I don't know why so I'm surprised. There is so Legacy. There is a town in the Eastern Free State, which is a subsection of South Africa, that is named Hobhouse after her. Oh, um, the SAS Emily Hobhouse, one of the South Africans Navy's um, submarines, is named after her. Um, it did get renamed later, but it was originally named after her. Um, in Bellefontaine, South Africa, the oldest resident on campus of the University of the Free State is named Hobhouse. Oh, so like particularly in South Africa, there's a ton of stuff named after her. There is a few things in Cornwall named after her too, because that's where she was born. There is a statue of her in the parish church at St. Ive in Cornwall, which is actually like a fairly large church. Like I've heard of St. Ive. Yeah. Um, there is a South African film named that English woman, which that is an English one. Yeah. I bet that's how they I, refer I to think, her. I think the full name of the film is like that English, English woman, an account of the life of Emily Hobhouse. Yeah. But like, so she, like they, a lot of like the stuff of remembrance and honor is from South Africa, not from Britain, because of course she called them out on their shit. She exposed them. She yeah. exposed their war crimes, their right. horror show. In more recent years, Britain is kind of like coming to and like doing more things and naming more things after her. There was a film named The King's Man, um, which features a character named Emily Oxford, who is very strongly based on Emily Hobhouse. Um, and she is depicted as an activist criticizing the condition of Britain's treatments of the Boers in South Africa. So, like, it's very clear who she's meant to be. Yeah. Um, and then in 2022, the University of Exeter in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at Cornwall um, named one of their, like, meetings after her, which is cute. I like that. So, like, Britain is kind of starting to be like, okay, yeah, we fucked up in the past. And, like, let's let's acknowledge the people that helped us acknowledge that we fucked up but like south africa is like hey she's the one that kind of like she fought for us she fought for us in a way that like even though they they she got sent there it's like she didn't hide the truth she came here she told them exactly what the fuck was going on while she was here she fought to get us basic fucking necessities Mm -hmm. and then she came back to make sure we were doing okay and helped us afterward. And like, yes, she primarily helped women, but that's like what she, that's just well, what she knew. And also, that's who was those most were, affected. Those were the, that was the primary demographic of people who were in these camps. And as you discussed, yeah. those were also the primary survivors because the majority of the children did not. And the men did not because yeah. they were the ones that were fighting. And I'm just like, it just breaks 
my heart to like, I can't even imagine like what she probably thought she was going to investigate versus what she actually like, because when she was sent, she was like, oh, there's one concentration camp. I'm just going to make like to talk to the women and make sure everything's okay. Mm -hmm. And then to get there and be like, no, there's 45 and everything's fucking terrible. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine like how she must have like reacted to that. And I just think it's so amazing that like South Africa is a country and like the women of South Africa were just like, thank you. Yeah. Like, because like they went through hell and back because of the British. And so to like be able to rise above that and recognize like, Hey, this one woman was doing the best she could. Yeah. And we appreciate that. I just, I think is very lovely. That's incredible. So yeah, that is, um, that's Emily. Um, the Emily. I, so I don't want to piss on the, the hopeful upswing of the end of that story. And if you, this is, this is a South African wine. Oh shit. I, 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 I realized like they talk about it. This is not a British wine. This is not an American wine. I was actually wine. wondering. This is a South African wine. That's awesome. It's good too. Um, but if you, it, I'm going to, I'm going to say something sad because I think it's important to acknowledge. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, if you're not, if you're not in the place for it after all this, please skip ahead about 30 seconds. Um, I made a decision. Did you look up Lizzie? I did. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to describe anything. I saw you like Google something and I saw your face fall and I was like, she Googled it. But what I, what I want to say is that there was a photograph taken of her shortly before she died. And remember she's being starved. Um, the image was released by the British and used as propaganda to state that this is what this little girl looked like when she came into the camp and blame was placed on her mother for neglect. And actually in 1902 and according to your timeline, this is after the war. uh, Lizzie's mother was being prosecuted for mistreatment. Jesus Christ. Emily, Emily Hobhouse uh, investigated the case and found that there was zero evidence that that Lizzie's I'm mother so contributed to that neglect. that wasn't like a part of she my confirmed, story. She confirmed that the that the photograph was not taken when this little girl came into the camp. Um, no, it, that was taken like when Emily visited her. Yeah, um, but I, what I want to say is that you know, and there there I just want to know the ending of her story. I didn't think it was I going really, to be good, but I, I just want to add that, though, that because that wasn't in any of my research yeah, on Emily, but. The British used their own atrocities as propaganda against the people they were victimizing. And Emily went in there was like, I mean, unfortunately, she couldn't save this little girl. But she went and she's like, that is not what fucking happened. And I literally have proof. Yeah. And like you can look at it and be like, no, like her dad was clearly a militant who refused to surrender to you. And then, yeah, this little girl and her mom entered a transient concentration camp and you put her on the lowest fucking rations which knowing the british there's probably like some paper trail of and there's already not yeah but i i just i did want to point that out that's just another level of the atrocity um 
also and that Emily, that Emily like, went followed in and it though and was like, like no no you no, are not gonna no, do this no 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 shut that shit down yeah it makes me mad that like in all the articles I looked at all the stuff I like found it didn't mention that I, I, and I could have dug a little further into Lizzie and I didn't y- you had a lot but to yeah. cover you had a lot to cover I appreciate you I just looking it up and following up I and I waited to the end because I didn't know if you'd get to it, but I just wanted, because this this is That's, one of the few victims yeah. whose names we know, and yes. I just wanted to figure out, you know, no, do, I do really we have an ending? That. So, yeah. And that's why I originally said when I brought up Lizzie, I'm like, unless you want to, like, think about this for a while, don't look it up. Yeah. So, Kelly. Nope, you can nope. go first. <laughs> I paused. I was waiting for you I to know. ask me, and you didn't, so I jumped on it, and now you have to suffer <laughs> the consequences of That's your inaction. My own folly. Yes. You, you know that this is a race. It to is. throw That's one of us under true. the bus, the thankfulness bus first. The thank- Especially when we have such a heavy story. Yeah, right it's, it's hard um, to feel. You know what I will say, and this is going to give you some time to think more. You know, we were talking about, you know, oh God, this is the least she could do. Or, you know, like this is damage control and things like that. And I know that came off as very critical of Emily. Um, I think it's just the the insurmountable odds that this individual is facing. Oh, yeah. And like like we've said, it really seems like she did the best she could with what she had. Well, and I think the fact that she went back after the fact. Yes. And that she like yes. followed Lizzie and helped Lizzie's mom and to be like, no, this is not, like you're lying. Yeah. And I then to help try too. and get people back on their feet. Um, but what I think, I, I think one of the biggest lessons from this other than colonial colonization, colonization, like it's, it's, it, it was always wrong. It's always going to be wrong. Please just let's not, let's not ever. Again. Um, and also like, these are stories that need to be told because people, nations are embarrassed. They should be embarrassed, like, but do they not shouldn't let nations sweep this under the rug. Exactly. Um, but what I think is really incredible is that, you know, she was, she was one woman. I don't really think she was expected to do much. She certainly was not expected to do as much as she did. Right. She was definitely not meant to like to come back blow and be like, the lid off of this thing. <laughs> I just envisioned the her British going government. back and like sh- wagging her finger at the British yeah. government and being like, shame on you. She went full Dame Ju- Duty. Jane- damn it. <laughs> full Jane Dame Judy Dench. Right. Um, but really, you know, even if it's not, she couldn't end the war. She couldn't save everyone. She could try and have a positive impact in whatever way she could. And she did. And even though I think you and I both had this feeling of like, this is insurmountable, but the acts of kindness, the acts of humanity that she did show obviously had an impact because the people and especially the women of South Africa still really care honor her, her, which I think is amazing. And I think it's, it's kind of one of those lessons. No act is too small or insignificant. Well, to have this like moment, especially when she dies of like her country, particularly where she grew up, not even like noting it, but having the country of like South Africa, particularly like the national women's monument in this camp. That was probably the, one of the worst camps be like, no, like we want your ashes. We want you to be here because we like, you did so much for us. You are a South African. Right. So Kelly, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for my team at work. Like the the particular brand of therapy I have, I do, not I have, I do um, 
we work very closely as a team. We have this like thing called consult, which is like all of us as therapists talking to one another about whether it's cases, like all obviously like our clients are well aware of it. Um, everything's ethical. Um, but I just really appreciate them. Like Fridays are consult day and sometimes it's really rough and sometimes it's not as rough, but I just, I really appreciate having that, like as a new therapist, being able to hear experiences of therapists that have been there a while or being able to be like, Hey, I'm really struggling with this. Like, how do I handle it? Like being able to have that sounding board of multiple people, not just like one with my supervisor and just knowing in the way they talk to me and like the, just the care and compassion that they give me, just like that they genuinely care about me as a human being, as another therapist and that they care like what I do and how I present. And they genuinely want to help me get better and want to see me thrive and like enjoy being around me. So I just, I really, I find myself on this Friday, we had consult today. So like being really thankful for, that team because sometimes it takes a village and sometimes it's just it's nice as a new therapist in particular it's a, it's a tough field to be in like people probably don't think about that very much but we're listening to everyone else's problems I'm also a little drunk um, I I couldn't do what you do but like I can't even deal with my own fucking problems <laughs> to be fair I right. compulsively help other people with their problems exactly. to avoid dealing with my own um, but I have limits. Avoidance. Anyways, but like having that team to like when I'm struggling or when someone else is struggling, either to be able to validate someone else or to get that validation or even just to hear like, hey, that really sucks. And I'm sorry that you're going through that or I've been there like that. Yeah. Particularly that validation of like, I've been there and it does suck or like I've never been there, but like I can understand how you're feeling and that like validation from other therapists. Like it's great to get validation from your friends, but obviously like with client confidentiality and some stuff like that, like there's some things you just can't talk right, to your friends right, about. Right, right, for sure. Well, and you know, so really your friends aren't going to get it exactly. the same way. So I really appreciate consult in that like, it's a safe space for like therapy. Like, honestly, they call it like therapy for the therapist. It's not true therapy. Like I'm in therapy separately from yeah. that <laughs> for my own issues, but like it's therapy to like help deal with the therapy we do mm -hmm. because the type of therapy I do is generally higher risk clients. So there's a lot of shit going on. So like being able to have that backbone and that, that the stuff to like talk to one another like can really help and I'm just really thankful for the team that I have I'm really happy to hear that and I you know obviously that's very important for you as a therapist but I think a lot of other businesses and organizations could take a note because Weekly the mental health meetings. the mental health of your of your co-workers and your employees is yeah. is really important and they're probably dealing with a lot of stuff that you're not aware right. of whether it's through in work or outside of work and you know sometimes just doing a check-in or just being able to vent so then yeah. you can move on is really helpful yeah and like that's the nice thing about consult is well okay there's one interesting thing and then one nice thing one interesting thing is it, it's there's two where I work there's two consults like one that's been obviously established a lot longer and then one that's for like all of us newer clinicians mixed with older clinicians. So mm -hmm. like half of our staff is in the old one and half of our staff is in the new one. So it's a little weird. Yeah. But we also have a, a weekly monthly or a weekly Monday staff meeting. So like mm -hmm. it's not quite consult, but 
you know, like it's nice. Honestly, I highly, if you're a manager anywhere, I highly recommend weekly or bi-weekly staff meetings, if for nothing else, then for your staff to yeah be able to get together and like commiserate with one another. Yeah. The second thing I completely forgot. So we're just going to move on. Emily, what are you thankful for? My brain. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, I'm a little drunk. That's it's okay. Fine. That's okay. I, I had a rough story to tell. I'm I'm stone cold sober, but I don't live here, so yeah, it's fine. Yeah, you have to drive home. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I should probably think of how I word this better. Okay, so you know, we love you. Anyways. The 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 older you get, you know, the more you kind of get to craft who you are. Um, and I've been very fortunate as an individual and as a woman to be surrounded by a lot of strong people, a lot of strong women whose advice and who, 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 that I really respect, who have a lot of different perspectives that help me to see things from different angles and to consider situations from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, you have people that have lived different life experiences or just had well, and different people, perspectives. And people who come from different like generations and, you know, thing, things like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of had like a moment of growth where I, I went to a few women in my life because I was I was struggling with something. Um, and I was kind of, you know, asking for advice and you know, do, doing a little commiserating. Right. Um. And I got different advice on on how I should proceed with something. Which makes sense, and, depending on the person's life circumstances or generation or whatever. Yeah. And I felt really good because I was able to take the different information, the different perspectives, and then decide, well, who do I want to be? Based on, you know, what I've learned, you know, take, taking the advice right. seriously. And I felt even stronger in the decision I made. Yeah, you can be like And the reasoning behind it, but like listening to the different perspectives and like considering the points that, you yeah. know, people made, it really kind of helped me to do a deeper self-exploration. And it wasn't that I did what one person said over another, it's that I was able to yeah. come to my own confident decision and how to yeah. handle something. And one I'm so thankful to have you know, this, this wonderful network of people who listen to me and who will offer advice and, you know, and then also respect whatever I decide to do. Right. They're not um, like, how dare you do that? You should do yeah. this instead. Like, they're That's they're just mistake. like, they're like, great. How yeah. can I support you in your decision? But also I just, I don't know. I kind of feel like I hit this like little bump of personal growth Aww. where I, I learned some things about myself. Um, coping with the past, how I want to proceed in the future. And it felt very much like this. I feel, I feel like I'm not doing what I'm being told. I feel like I am making a decision right. on my own and I feel really confident. Like, I don't yeah, know. It was, like was that self-confidence of like, you yeah. know what? I know what I want. I know how I want to proceed. At and least I know in this why. situation. And there was, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of conclusions and realizations I came to that yeah. made me feel really good. And I'm just, I'm very fortunate to have that circle of people to help me come to those conclusions on my own, not right. to tell me what to do, but to listen to me, to offer their input and their perspectives. And then support me when I decide right. what's like, best for me. Yeah. It's like an amalgamation of all these various people helping you come together and be like, okay, this, this is how I feel. 
Mm-hmm. And I have, yeah, all this input from all these people that support me, regardless of which way I choose to move forward. Yeah. I know that they'll still be there. You know, it's not one of those situations where you're like, oh God, if I choose this, I'm losing a friend. Yeah. It's like, no, I reached out to people that I feel safe with and they gave me advice and I can now take that advice and yeah, craft how I want to move forward. Yeah. And what's best for me. And I, you know, I, I, I joke that I'm a mess. I am. Everyone's but like, mess. we're all messes, but Internally. I don't know. Like, I just, I kind of feel like a little more self-realized as right. a person. And it's kind of like the first time I didn't feel like a complete, dis- you know, like, Hot, I didn't feel like mess. a disaster and it wasn't a little, like a fire internally. It wasn't even that there was like just a lack of feeling like a disaster. I just felt really good. Yeah. You were just like, no, I know that confidence. I know. That, like, I know, I know who I want to move forward. And I know, I know who I want to be. So yeah, that was, I don't know. That was really Aww. nice. Uh-huh. Well, on that note, that high <laughs> note that we dragged from the depths of despair. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to a super duper, half super depressing episode of whining about her street. Just remember the dog bra. Just remember all the Tata just, melon just bap. Skip, just skip <laughs> Kelly. It's fine. No, don't. You need to listen to it. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Her Street, Instagram at WAHpod. You know, I was going to bring up Twitter, but we don't Fuck use it. Twitter. Fuck it. I'm done. Our website is whiningaboutherstreet.com. The, the platform formerly known as it's Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> I, whatever. I'm, I'm so going to like re, I'm gonna have to redo my part of this speech. I'm because, so done. Um, our website is whiningaboutherstreet.com, where you can find a link to all of our social meds. Um, our merch, which is pretty damn sweet and you should get some. Hashtag not this Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, You can also find a link to our Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1 a month. That is a monthly donation. Otherwise, if you want to give a one-time donation, you can go to buy me a coffee www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash W-A-H pad. Also, if you want to give me and Emily some warm, fuzzy feelings, you can rate us five stars wherever you listen because it will. It will give us warm fuzzies and we will just stare at that five stars. We desperately need it. I make life decisions based on those reviews. Legit. (laughs) We are not a serious history podcast, guys. Yeah. Never claim to be. And we never will be because we got that review now and we're like, no, never, never. This is a permanent part of our branding. You can also buy that shirt. (laughs) Seriously. I love it so much. It's my favorite. Okay, it's not my favorite shirt, but it's up there. It's It's up up there. there. No, I dig it. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Have an empowered day, y'all. Bye. I can't harmonize.